Hello and welcome to Time for Cakes and Ale, episode 29, with me Eason. And me Bex. And this is our special bumper edition, which was recorded largely at EasterCon 2019, Iterbium. Yes, yeah, so we went to EasterCon over the long weekend down in London this time. And EasterCon is primarily a science fiction convention, but it's unusual in, the, in that you get a real mix of not just fans of science fiction, but also lots of writers, editors, agents, publishers... Uh, lots of reviewers, podcasters, YouTubers, a- anyone that you can imagine who is from that primarily written science fiction field, but also from the wider sci-fi community. And we've been going to EasterCons for sort of almost 10 years or so. Um, and this was the first time where we thought it'd be really fun to take some of our recording equipment with us to uh, record an episode with lots of people who were attending to kind of get a flavour of what goes on at the convention and speak to uh, a lot of different people that would perhaps capture the range of attendees. So in this uh, episode, what we have are 12 interviews with uh, various attendees who were very generous with their time on what is usually a very, very busy weekend as well. Mm. Um, And we uh, got to have some conversations with people that cover things such as... uh, Uh, writing genre fiction, uh, attending conventions, con running. And we spoke to uh, writers as well, some of whom are uh, very well established and others who are turning up to EasterCon with uh, their daily works available for the first time. Yes, always great to meet new people at these conventions. It normally happens in the bar at all hours of the day and night. You just get chatting to people and find out that they've just published a book, are in the middle of writing a book, um, are there to promote a book, sometimes all three. But it is primarily a, a fan-run convention, um, a convention put together by fans of science fiction for fans of science fiction. So there's loads of panels to attend talking about the current state of sci-fi in books, on TV, in the movies. And indeed, this year, we ended up on a couple of panels ourselves talking about podcasting and how people can get into it. So coming up during the episode, we have... 12 conversations that we had and in order they are Juliet Kemp who is a writer and this year was involved in some behind the scenes work at the convention as well. Ali Baker who is also involved in some of the behind the scenes con running and is a academic in the field of children's literature and children's education. Uh, there's Dave Clements who's an astrophysicist and he's involved heavily in the science program at conventions but he's also um, an established writer of uh, short science fiction as well. Emma Newman, who is a science fiction author and also an audiobook narrator and artist. And then we have science fiction writer Daniel Benson, who, after writing uh, a lot of short fiction, has uh, just published his debut novel. Then we have fantasy author F.D. Lee. And then booktuber and podcaster Claire Russo. Then we have Noel Chidwick, who is the co-founder and editor of Shoreline of Infinity magazine. And then we have Emil Minchev, who is a writer and translator of all kinds of fiction. We have Beth Folds, who is a writer and also runs the Speculative Spaces podcast. Ruth Booth, who is a writer, academic and non-fiction columnist for Shoreline of Infinity. And finally, Ian Waits, who is a science fiction author and also the founder of Newcon Press. So all of these interviews were recorded at various locations uh, around the convention, uh, giving you a sense of what being at a convention can be like 
uh, at times you'll probably get a lot of sense of the uh, general ambience of uh, <laughs> being in a convention especially as uh, the day kind of warms up and and the bar where we were recording starts filling up as well you'll probably hear in the background uh, lots of other congoers uh, members of staff who uh, decide to start vacuuming very close by <laughs> to us uh, there's the clattering of cutlery being taken in and out of the rooms and an awful lot of pint glasses being uh, picked up and put down again yeah and if you want to really uh, uh, capture the smells of the convention as well you should pour yourself a, a glass of real ale as well and listen along <laughs> uh, we're about to kick off but uh, we just like to thank all of the people who gave their time to record conversations for this episode um, in particular uh, we often asked for recommendations of specific authors and books that our listeners might be interested in checking out if you listen out there are lots of things that get recommended so we're going to jump into the interviews now and if you want to find out any more information about any of the guests all the details and links are going to be on our blog Hello, I'm Juliet Kemp. I'm a writer, um, and my first novel um, and my first novella came, both came out last year, last summer. Um, the novel is *The Deep and Shining Dark*, um, which was on the Locust Recommends Reads list, recommended reads list uh, in 2018. Um, it's a secondary world city fantasy um, with magic and politics and complicated family loyalties and lots of queer people. Um, and my novella was, is called A Glimmer of Silver. Um, it's second contact rather than first contact, and it has a sentient ocean and a very grumpy teenager, and everyone uses Z pronouns. Um, so, yeah, that's me. So have you always been into science fiction and fantasy? Yes. <laughs> I can remember as a kid reading my way through all those Doctor Who novels. Like I'm, I'm 40, so these are the ones that were out in the 80s. Mm. Um, like there's serried ranks of them in the library, I just read the lot. Um, and I also very vividly remember reading a book by Nicholas Fisk called A Ragabone and a Hank of Hair, which is an excellent kids' science fiction um, novel. Um, and I'm not going to spoiler it, but there is the twist at the end just absolutely blew me away. I, I still remember that feeling of, oh my God, that's what's happening. <laughs> Um, and how it, how cleverly it had been set up, and that, that feeling of like now I know what what all of those clues were, and they hit just the right moment. Um, and that's kind of about uh, memory and identity, and it explores those sorts of themes um, in a way that's like really stuck with me. And I must have been eight or nine at the time. <laughs> um, and then as a yeah, as a teenager, I read a lot of uh, most of fantasy and sort of the classic classic science fiction, Asimov, and I read a lot of uh, Anne Caffrey and David Eddings. Um, and I, I suspect, had I been a couple of years younger, I would have got into the sort of burgeoning online fic community um, at, as a teenager. But I, I know there was, uh, you know, there were newsletters and, and fic and a fandom around at that time. But I didn't get; it was hard to get at. I think when I, you know, in the in the eighties and nineties, when I was a kid and a teenager. Um, so yeah, and I've just I haven't been involved in fandom per se until the last I don't know five ten years um, but I've been reading yes spec fic yeah my entire my whole life and how long have you been writing for um again I wrote a lot as a kid and a teenager and then I kind of stopped because you you know you're not really encouraged to see that as a serious way to spend your time and you know, I've had GCSEs and A-levels and I was, did, did a lot of music and that was all very important um, and then I started writing again I don't know, 10 or so years ago, maybe, off and on. Um, and, but again, more, more seriously, 
Um, yeah, my, my kid's seven now, and I, I remember I, I'd written a couple of short, had a couple of short stories published when he was um, when he was born, and I'd also written a couple of uh, non-fiction books. Uh, because, but I got asked to write a short story um, to fill a gap in an anthology when he'd just been born, and like an idiot, I said yes. <laughs> so I wrote this story like with a baby in one arm, kind of feeding, <laughs> and on my phone in the other hand writing the story. Um, which, on the one hand, I can't recommend, but I actually quite like the story. Um, and it's about uh, it's it's kind of when I read it back, it's like about losing your identity in a weird. And I was sort of, and it's quite it's almost like a horror story, which I don't normally write. And I was like, hmm, what was going through my head in in this time? <laughs> it's extreme sleep deprivation. <laughs> so your debut novel came out last year. Mm-hmm. How did you go about the process of finding a publisher? It was it was more straightforward than I'd expected in that I sent it to a few agents who and either didn't hear back or got polite no um, and Elsewhen Press had an open uh, readings period at that time um, and I sent it to them and they said yes um, somewhat to my surprise <laughs> um, and I had the flu when I got their email I was recovering from the flu and uh, you know you're all kind of a bit wonky in the heads and I kind of looked at it and I was like is this, am, I, is, am I reading this correctly and had to ask my partner to check <laughs> So what was it like seeing the physical copy of your book for the first time? Terrifying. I know people say it's exciting and it kind of was, but mostly it was really scary. <laughs> people are going to read this now. It's right there in print. Yeah, it was also nice, but whoa, yeah. And I, I, I have to ask you, because the, ever since you mentioned the idea, it's, I've, I've been thinking about it. How does the sentient ocean work? Because I love that <laughs> idea. <laughs> I want to say read the book. <laughs> I will. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I'm trying to think of a way to describe it. Isn't it's it's an it's set on an ocean planet. Like the whole planet is ocean, and uh-huh. humans have landed on in the belief that there was no sentience there, and then they discovered over over time that in fact the whole effectively the whole planet is a kind of I suppose it's a kind of Gaia thing. The planet is sentient, and the the ocean in in a in a way that's also made up of all the things in the ocean, um, and the humans freak out and try and that they, they can't. They can't leave; they're stuck. But they they try. The humans freak out and try and kind of remain separate from ocean. And the story is about kind of fifty odd years later, um, and the ways in which that is now failing. And generally, uh, my protagonist um, is instrumental in kind of in realizing that that's maybe not what ocean wants anymore. So we're here at EasterCon. It's, mm-hmm. the, it's the Friday morning, it's the start of the convention, so everyone's relatively sober and still awake. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to stay that way over the weekend. Um, how long have you been coming to cons? Um, only since uh, Worldcon in London, which is 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, I have friends who go to cons, but I've not, I've not gotten around to it. Before that, I was quite involved in um, various activism things, so I was doing a rather different sort of uh, camping in fields. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's science fiction cons. I came to EasterCon in London because I live in London and like, it seemed daft not to. Um, I remember enjoying it. My kid was like two at the time and I wasn't sleeping very well, so I don't, my memories are really fuzzy of most of like, <laughs> about three years around that period. Um, but I had a lovely time. Um, and then I think, Easter, I think EasterCon, the next EasterCon was actually again in, in Heathrow, maybe. Not, wouldn't like to swear blind to that. I know it was around then. Um, so I came back to that and, you know, it once... Once you start coming, you kind of you kind of keep thinking this is this is really good fun. I'm going to come back next time. Um, 
And if you've, if you've, for example, bought your membership for the next one before you leave, you're committed, so you can't be disrupted. <laughs> and then, uh, sort of, there's that, that Wayne's World doodle-doodle um, thing, and, and you find yourself doing organising things, like, how does this even happen? I don't know. <laughs> so what's it like doing some of the behind-the-scenes work at a con? Um, I've been doing the behind-the-scenes work before the con, um, and I'm not, doing, I'm not intending to do very much... Uh, during I'm on a couple of panels and, and I'm looking after one of the guests on for a little bit but uh, beforehand it's just been really busy we sent about 9 million emails basically <laughs> on a conservative estimate <laughs> um, I've been trying to I've been helping sort out the programme I'm one of the programme team um, so we've been con- getting, working out what we want to do and matching up it's like this giant kind of four dimensional Tetris thing where you've got people and things they want to do things we want to do and fitting all of those people into the things and then into the rooms and then shifting it all around because there's a clash. And I've, I've not, thankfully, had the job of doing the fitting it into the timetable bit, um, which I think is even harder, but I've been, doing, you know, I've been trying to fit people to, people to items and then get you in contact with them and then dealing with it when they say they can't do it after all. It's, yeah, just an awful lot of emails. I was, I'm very curious as to how they did it before email. I'm told by <laughs> phone and ran less programme, part of the answer. <laughs> <laughs> so over the last few years when you've been coming to cons and also writing your first books um, have you found that it, it helps coming along to conventions because obviously there's a you know, Eastercon is a fan run convention and there's a fan side but there's also an industry side to it where you get to meet writers, publishers, editors, um, agents is it, is it helpful or just kind of generally encouraging to be in that atmosphere when you're starting out? Um, I, it's certainly encouraging, and it does mean you can you can meet uh, yeah other authors um, and people who are sort of further ahead in their careers, and that's really lovely. Um, I've been to some interesting kind of industry-related uh, talks and things like that over time. John John Gerald in particular is very um, you know does, frequently does kind of how to get an agent, you know first steps in publishing um, talks, which are really really useful. And yeah, I think partly it's. It, it can. I'm trying to think of the right way to put it. It can help you feel part of a community, I suppose, and and like a real person. <laughs> That's uh, doing. Going to. Um, I went to FantasyCon last year, sort of when my, my book was launched there, and that was people. People were really kind. People were really nice. They're like, "Oh, you've got a book launch. It's your first book. That's brilliant." And I, it it sounds really daft, but it really helped me take it seriously. I was a bit. I found the whole thing a bit um, unreal until then I was like well, I suppose it's a book but like it's not like a book book I mean it, it, it was it's a book book like that's really true and <laughs> um, so yeah it's uh, other people can be really lovely so are there any particular authors or books you've read recently that you'd recommend people check out um, I'm going to check what I wrote down because I always find that people ask me this question and then I'm like some things with words in I have definitely <laughs> read um, the uh I've been reading a certain amount of stuff for um, panels the last week or so, um, and this year I'm trying to tackle my to-be-read list, or e-pile, which is about 200 books strong. Some things have been on my Kindle for, like, you know, five years, but I'm going I'm to read them all. Um, but I have also read some new stuff. I've read A Memory of Empire by Arcadie Martine um, most recently, which is brilliant. Um, I thought that was, that, I really, really enjoyed that and strongly recommend it. Um, I've also been reading uh, K.J. Charles. Some of her stuff is... She, do, she writes romance, historical romance, some of which is also speculative, or it's fant- fantasy. Um, her most recent one, um, which I read an arc of proper English, is coming out soon, which isn't... And it's also great, but all her stuff is great. 
The, uh, Aliette de Bodard's um, The Tea Master and the Detective is excellent, is on um, the Hugo's, is on Hugo's um, shortlist. Um, in fact, the Hugo shortlist is brilliant. Loads and loads of good stuff on there. Um, what else have I read? Uh, T. Kingfisher, um, who is Ursula Vernon's other name. Um, and that's the, the Wonder Engine, which is the second half of the Clock Tour Boys duology. Um, and it's a, it's a, that's a good duology. And Sword, Sword Heart um, was, her other, was her one that came out quite recently. Um, and that's just a lovely, hap- it's a lovely cheering book. Like, happy's not quite right, like, bad things happen in it. Um, but not, not outrageously bad. And basically, like, there are, there are just nice people. I like, I'm, I, I'm on a panel about this later, later on, about kind of um, utopias and hope punk and solar punk. And I am not much of a reader of Grimdark. I prefer things that have, you know, that, that, Present the better things in human nature, and maybe give, give give me things to feel hopeful about, rather than uh, rather than feeling like, God, oh, man, people are shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> don't like that. Get enough of that in real life. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's sometimes you, I feel like science fiction has an, has a really important role in kind of showing e- examples of of the future that aren't just you know the worst case scenario mm. for humanity. Because there's an awful lot of dystopian fiction. Has, mm. that is around now and, and sort of has been over the last 10 years so it, is it important for for there to equally be examples that are hopeful or that that, that make people inspired and and uh, want to change things rather than accepting that things are going to be awful uh, yes absolutely i'm nodding, nodding furiously throughout <laughs> this um uh, yes very much so i feel i feel very strongly um about that and i'm actually as as we're having this interview i'm looking over your shoulder and they're showing the climate protests um report on the tv um which uh and it's it's that kind of thing this idea that you can you can do something to try and improve the world and i think one of the problems that we often have in science fiction is is a bit of a tendency to write um, a far future which looks different sometimes in good ways which is great like that's cool but there's also this kind of gap sometimes like how do we get there from here what do you do to change now um, partly I think because it's quite it can be quite hard to write you know and some of the this is another panel one about conflict without violence um, and there's a bit of a, a, a can be a fantasy trope in particular of kind of you go and you go in with your big sword and you slay the evil one and then everything's going to be great um, which is very satisfying <laughs> can be very satisfying emotionally um, but it's not actually how bad you know that's not how you improve the world really that's not that's not how it works um, uh, and it's, it's very satisfying to write about the big sword and the evil one um, and slightly less satisfying to write about um, the you know slow tedious work that can be cha- making change in the real world so I mean Kim Stanley Robinson does do a bit of that um, and certainly writes people trying to make things better although not always succeeding and he's not always very positive but the, like, he, he does kind of have his hands in the practicalities of it you see what I mean um, straying away from the question here but yes I think, I think there, are, there are kind of for me I think there are two ways that science fiction or fantasy can, can do hope and one of them is just the portraying a different future that looks different um, you know I write uh, I, I write books with a lot of queer people in obviously that's not a fantasy, fantasy thing that's really true, there are queer people um, uh, but we don't we, you know, historically we haven't always seen stories about them, that's a different matter um, but also I, there is a place for stories about being queer um, and 
that's great but I also want to read the stories where people are just like where this is just a facet of humanity and also the stories where we're in a future where it no longer matters where you know we don't have to deal with transphobia and, and homophobia and all this horrible stuff um, and I think that can I, I can find that really I find that really com compelling and positive to read and like you know we, there, there is another way is possible maybe that's the way of thinking it. Um, and so there's that role but there's, I think there's also a role for science fiction and hope punk and solar punk tend to play into this this idea of trying to change things right now what can we do to make a little bit of a difference here and now solar punk my working theory is solar punk tends to be a little bit post dystopian but trying to improve things and hope punk is more likely to be um, pre dystopian as it were and trying to avert the dystopia that's that's my current working theory on the matter um, I'm not committed to it <laughs> going to be arguing it later today <laughs> um, and yeah I think that's really really valuable and it can really inspire people I think it's very important great well thank you so much for joining us Juliet it's been a pleasure talking to you it's been, it's been great talking to you thank uh, you for best of luck with all the panels for the rest of the con and with your uh, with your duties um, looking yes. after the guests of honour <laughs> And if anyone wants to get hold of A Deep in Shining Dark, that's available from Elsewhen Press. And also their novella, A Glimmer of Silver, is out on ebook right now. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, I'm Ali Baker. I'm co head of programme. And uh, I, most of I came onto the programme committee in the first place to organise children's programming, but things changed and I ended up becoming one of the co-heads of the programme. So, um, yeah, sort of with two hats, really. So what's it like getting involved in the behind-the-scenes work in, in Ocon? It's so... It ta everything takes double the time you think it's going to. <laughs> And we are still having to rejig things as, as uh, there are some people who can't make it, a uh, couple, couple of people who have become ill, um, that sort of thing. So, yeah, we are still updating Grenadine and moving things around right now. In fact, my co-head is sitting on the other side of, of this bar, uh, moving things around in Grenadine right now. <laughs> <laughs> So how do you go about coordinating a, a stream at a convention like EasterCon for children? Last year at FollyCon, I suggested a couple of programme items for children and they went very, very well. Um, my favourite programme item, which is happening this year as well, is um, children recommending their own favourite <laughs> books, stories, movies... TV programs, uh, games with narrative. It's called My Last Best Story. And uh, we've got one of the same panellists from last year and two new ones. The oldest panellist is 18 and the youngest is seven. So it's going to be a real range there. Um, and we also have uh, Luna Press are coming to uh, launch a new children's. Uh, young adult novels and it asked some young people to go onto that panel as well so that's fantastic having a YA panel with actually young adult readers on it uh, young adult readers who are under 18 as well so yeah that's that's what's happened I hope not next year but the year after that to come back and be involved and continue to move uh, children's programming forward 
We've also got uh, entertainment for children. Um, playing Rapunzel are doing a, a children's concert, which is really wonderful. Um, and unfortunately, my Disney sing-along panel couldn't happen this year, so I'm determined that that will happen another year. Yeah. So you're a lecturer at University of East London. That's right, yes. Um, and your particular area of interest is in sort of representation in, in children's literature. Yes. Um, how has that, this is, this is probably an enormous question, but how has that changed over sort of the last hundred years? Um, so my, I'm starting looking at, my starting point is Alan Garner's Elidor, <laughs> which was published in 1965. And it was quite unusual in that it is a fantasy book that is set in Manchester rather than in a mythical world or and also it's not set in the countryside because a lot of children's fantasy um, continues to be about young people who go to a different place and discover a, a, a portal to a new world or there's some intrusion that happens from another world um, and this is in it's, it starts off in Sale um, in, in Manchester and Salford, sorry not Sale what am I talking about, Salford in Manchester you, you can actually find many of the places that are mentioned in, on a map this is in the time of, of slum regeneration and that was very very unusual the, the portal to the other world is a, um, a half demolished church in a slum clearance area of, of Salford. And that's fascinating. During the 1960s and 1970s, there started to become much more ordinary working class children in books, uh, fantasy books. But then that sort of changed quite a bit. And the way I'm looking at it is when things changed in terms of children's right to roam being taken away, it then had to be sort of the Harry Potter type um, child being taken somewhere completely away from their family because it wasn't realistic for children to be moving around on their own and you can't have adventures with a parent there because they stop they will naturally stop the children being in danger so that's sort of the way I'm looking at it I think it's it's very much the move away from working class children to much more middle class upper, upper middle class children happened around the time that children lost their freedom to go and play on their own because of more cars, because of more perceptions of danger uh, and also of course with the perception that working class children on their own these days are likely to be thought of being up to no good. My favourite book, or one of my favourite books that I've read is a trilogy by Michael de Larabeti called The Borables, which was extremely shocking at the time. It is about a group of children who are homeless and squat. Um, they are borables, they become borables, um, sort of Peter Pan, Peter Pan type children who never grow up. So it's sort of like a cross between the borrowers, Peter Pan and the Wombles, uh, set in um, Clapham and Battersea. Uh, and they go on a quest down to Wandsworth. Um, to defeat another group of, of borables. Uh, yeah, it's wonderful. I think sometimes when you when you look back at children's fiction from sort of 
an, an earlier era, it can be easy to spot where at times it feels like it was being very sort of morally didactic towards mm. kids, as if the purpose of children's literature is to impart the right ideas to kids. Is that something that's still very much happening and we just yes. don't perceive it? Yes, I think quite recently there's been a, a book within the last couple of weeks, uh, a book published by an author called Shana Jackson, which is called The High Rise Mystery. So it's not a fantasy book, it's a detective story featuring uh, two sisters who are 11 and 13 who live in uh, high rise flats and they're investigating um, the death of their art teacher. And there was quite a kerfuffle about it in that it, because Shana Jackson is a black British woman, it's published by a press called Knights Of, which is specifically set up to publish books by authors of colour from Britain. And a whole load of people were saying, well, why does this have to be thrust down children's throats? Why does diversity have to be thrust down children's throats? Which is a very weird argument because children of colour have had whiteness thrust down their throats forever. So when there's one or two books that have uh, children from different backgrounds, it's, it's seen as some kind of PC gone mad type of, of situation. It's a very odd thing. Yes, there is didacticism in all books, I would say. You know, who, you, who the author chooses to be the hero, what qualities they choose to um, reward within books is inherently political and it is um, inherently didactic. Very much so in, in children's books. The Borrowables was particularly problematic uh, f- in terms of its writing for children because bad things, children did bad things and they were rewarded for it. Um, and that, that's something that is very troublesome uh, in many ways and very problematic. Um, I'm, ro- I'm going to be on a panel uh, with Francis Harding and um, Stephanie Burgess talking about this very thing, morals and ethics of children's writing. I don't think that we can ever get away from the fact that there are going to be moral judgments made and political judgments made in children's books, but it's, they've also got to be entertaining. Yeah, it can't be Victor, those Victorian sort of um, <laughs> religious tracts that the children just wouldn't read them these days. It's, it seems to be something that people get more worked up about when it's fiction primarily for children yes. rather than fiction for adults where yeah. there's plenty of books where terrible people get away with everything yeah, yeah, that they yeah. do and no one seems to, to mind about it. Um, and at, at the same time, in children's literature, they're... There, there just seems to be kind of grouping in age groups of what's suitable for an age group without necessarily much division by genre or as for ad- adult fiction everything mm. is very much this is crime fiction this is science fiction this is literary mm. fiction and you know never the twain shall meet yeah. so it, it's, it's still that we're, we're treating the, the, the concept of what fiction is so differently for someone yes um, purely on an, on an age by age basis yes I think that's absolutely right it's, it's quite interesting uh, that within the Hugos this year there is a, um, there's a young adult uh, award for uh, children's or young yeah, fantasy science fiction for young people. Um, 
but and yet the other types of awards for children are just for the best children's book, the Carnegie, um, you know, the, the sort of the other, the Blue Peter Award, uh, Waterstones Prize, and so on. So you do. It is quite interesting that you will have realistic um, stories about. Um, well, all sorts of things. For example, I'm trying to think of one that won recently. My, Michael Morpurgo's books um, are very often tend to be historical fiction, um, often connected to war and displacement of children, and that will go up against, um, well, probably Philip Pullman's next uh, book in his series of the Books of Dust, and and they are two. They are totally different. One is a fantasy. And one is, uh, you know, a realistic historical novel, but they will be judged against each other. It's quite hard to think. Well, how do you then choose? Which, it then, surely it then comes down to what do the readers, the people who are judging this prize, what do they enjoy? I'm glad that there is though the, uh, the funny funny prize, the Roldar funny prize is still going. Um, because, yeah, I think we tend to overvalue um, serious books over books that are fun uh, to read. And children have to enjoy what they're reading, otherwise they won't read it. Is children's literature getting more sophisticated? I think it is getting much more sophisticated. Um, I grew out of reading um, sort of children's books when I was probably about 13 and I went straight to reading adult books, which quite of, often I didn't appreciate, didn't really understand, and didn't enjoy. Uh, a case in point being Wuthering Heights, which I read when I was 12, and I was very confused about, because, again, you know, the, the Heathcliff is a monster, and I thought, this is really peculiar. Are men supposed to be like this? Um, no, they're really not. Uh, people who say that Wuthering Heights is a romance, they're wrong. Um, I'm sorry. Um, yes, so I think it's great that there are the, the middle middle grade, as it's called now, books for eight to twelve year olds are becoming much more sophisticated, much more um, challenging in terms of the concepts that they're talking about, and also I'm very very pleased that there are young adult novels out there for which are more they they are more challenging in their subject matter but still sort of do have parameters whereby there are certain expectations of what we, what we do expect that things in some way will work out to be okay for the protagonist. Although um, one of the most disturbing books in recent years that I've read is Only Ever Yours by Louise O'Neill, which, which really confounded my, me by not having a happy ending. Um, obviously no spoilers. It's a great book. People should read it. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's not... It's not what people would think of as uplifting, uh, moral, morally uplifting or otherwise. Are there any other books or authors that you'd recommend at the moment? Well, I'm absolutely delighted that Stephanie Burgess is, is here. She's a wonderful writer. Her middle grade um, books are absolutely fabulous. Um, the Dragon with a Chocolate Heart is one of my favourite books. I'm really looking forward to her signing it. Um, she really is wonderful. I'm also um, very, very fond of uh, Jonathan Stroud's Bartimaeus trilogy, um, and I, um, that's one of the books. That's one of the series I'm writing about in my thesis. 
And um, I also really, really love Nedia Korafor's um, young adult and children's books, and I wish more of them were published in Britain. I think she's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. And best of luck with the rest of the convention and with the panel on children's literature, which we're going to be coming along to. Oh, fantastic. I'll see you there. Thanks. Hi, I'm Dave Clements. Uh, I write as David L. Clements, which is actually my full name. Um, I am a reader in astrophysics at Imperial College London, so I do science fictional things as the day job. Um, I'm involved in various space missions, Herschel and Planck most recently, and uh, fu a future candidate European Space Agency mission called Speaker. I'm currently the UK project scientist for. Um, I write science fiction, uh, short stories so far, um, published in Analog, Nature and a few other places. Um, I have been a con runner. Uh, I organised a science programme for LunCon. Um, is that a long enough CV for <laughs> you? <laughs> I could go on. So were you a fan of science fiction before you went into science? Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I grew up during the Apollo era. Um, and that, of course, alongside that were things like Star Trek, Doctor Who, um, various other things. I, Thunderbirds, I was a great fan of the Jerry Anderson things, everything from Thunderbirds, Captain Scarlet, UFO. So space and uh, technology, all of those things were the future when I was growing up. So it was kind of logical for me to go into physics and then astrophysics. Uh, when it was time to go to university and no, it was time to pick A-levels and things. So yes, science fiction has very much been in the background of, of motivation and, and sparking interest. Do you think uh, real science that you're working on bleeds into the fiction that you're writing? It, it certainly does, um, bo both in terms of actual subject matter. So the first, sh first short story I, I had published in Analog um, it's called A War of Stars, so it's, it's published many years ago now. Um, the genesis of that story was sitting in a, a seminar about neutron stars and neutron star accretion from, from binary partners, which is not related at all, e not even a little bit, to what my own research work is. And it was a, it was a hot seminar room. Um, I was kind of fading out a little bit. And I got thinking about... Um, what it might be look, what, what it would look like to be looking at the, the accretion stream and flying around it and flying through it, and I was thinking, well, why would you want to do that? And that formed the basis of the of the short story. In fact, there's, there's things I was thinking. Well, if um, you wanted to do such and such a thing, uh, then so the, the, the background to this is that the neutron star has been modified by. Um, one particular group to be a, a, a vast computer uh, with virtual environment and some uploaded personalities, etc., etc. Uh, and there's another group that doesn't like these people and wants to do something about it. Now, a neutron star, if you push its mass above a certain value beyond the Chandrasekhar limit, it collapses into a black hole. So, if you want to kill a neutron star and, and what it is being used for, just dump some more mass on it. Uh, and I was thinking, how can you increase the mass rate? 
because uh, there's a thing called the Eddington limit about that, that limits the accretion of any particular body. It's to do with the amount of radiation being pushed out, um, and that will oppose uh, material falling in. So you've got to balance radiation pressure against gravity. Uh, and a way of enhancing that would be to, instead of accreting hydrogen, you accrete heavier elements all the way up to iron. And I was thinking, yeah, well, yeah, that might work. I wonder if anybody's looked into this in super Eddington accretion of, of neutron stars. So I typed a search into um, NASA ADS, the Astrophysical Data System, and exactly the right paper popped up. <laughs> I don't think I've ever done anything like that with a short story since, but <laughs> the paper was there. It demonstrated the, the vague idea I had was right. And, and so that was the sort of scientific background for the, for the short story. Um, so that's just one instance. Most of the things I, I write have got some level of uh, science informing them, whether it's specific bits of science um, or whether it's an attitude. Uh, I'm a scientist. I'm always going to think like a scientist, even if it's in a you know, story background that involves Cthulhu. <laughs> um, so, yes, that, that's how I think, that's how I work. I, I can't, can't escape that. Are you very conscious when you're reading science fiction about the accuracy of the science that's being portrayed? It's consistency is, is what I look for. Um, obviously, a, a random factual error uh, will throw me out of it. Uh, but you know, these things happen. Um, and what you're seeking in, in fiction of any kind is a willing, willing suspension of disbelief. And you know, I'm usually pretty... I, I, I will be more willing if the story's engaging, if the story is, is um, something that I'm following, that I'm, that I'm into, than, than if I'm not. And so, for example, I've just finished reading uh, The Stone Sky by N.K. Jemison, which is marketed as fantasy but the further you get along in that trilogy the more clear it became to me this is actually this is actually science fiction it's, you know, it's what might be classified as science fantasy but you know, to paraphrase Clark any sufficiently advanced form of magic is indistinguishable from technology and that's, that's really what's happening there um, and you know, it's, it's consistency so if you, if you look at Game of Thrones, um, at least in the written form, they think about how you're going to feed those vast armies. Um, Tolkien never thought about that. Uh, and so there, there, there is a... If, if you are building your world properly within its own limits, then, then you, you can have me on board no matter whether it's classified as fantasy or whether it's a sort of near future gritty realism can you tell us a little bit about your short story collection um, Disturbed Universes yeah so that, that came out in 2016 um, it basically was a collection of all the short stories I'd, I'd written up until that point uh, with some non-fiction mixed in uh, so there's one thing I've done uh, for websites like lablet.com is write some, you know, short 
essentially short stories about my own experiences being a working astronomer. So I think the thing I've had published in Lablet, uh, uh, that was a, an ex shortened version of something that was published in Clark's World quite a few years ago. It's about my experiences on, on Mauna Kea, the big observatory in Hawaii. Uh, my first observing trip there, I had the interesting experience of forgetting to breathe, um, which, which can, can happen up there. Uh, so there's some non-fiction mixed into disturbed universes as well. Um, so it's, it's a grab bag of my writing at that point with various different, um, with, with some um, explanations as afterwards to each of the stories. The, there's for the final four or five are all set in the same universe, which is a kind of fictional project I've been working on for a while. Um, it's it's the most interstellar thing I've written in terms of uh, the distance scales. Uh, it's very long time scales. The the f first story I wrote in that world. Um, which is in the, in the collection, was originally published in uh, Conflict, uh, another Newcon Press uh, anthology, is set 100 million years in the future. Uh, but I've kind of done this strange game with myself. I have, this is, as I said, this is the largest scale thing I've, I've written so far. Um, it is rigorously. Einsteinian sense, no faster than light travel. But you know, I've had in this story, I have people going out well far outside the galaxy, but it's all sublight. Um, and I've got another fictional project I'm working on at the moment, which does allow light speed travel and maybe a little bit of faster than light. And that's all set in the solar system. <laughs> okay, it includes the Oort cloud, so it's a little bit bigger than what we might normally consider the solar system. But I'm kind of that. that it's an interesting inversion, which once I realised that that's what I was doing, I thought, yeah, I'll stick with this. This is, this is a bit weird, and, and I can play with it. Uh, so that's, that's the final four or five stories in um, Disturbed Universes. Most of the rest, so there's um, a sort of duology, is that, is that a word? Um, my first ever pro publication was in Nature Futures, which is the back page of, of Nature magazine. Uh, it's in terms of what you get per word. It's a ludicrously high uh, rate of pay, but you're only allowed somewhere between 850 and 950 words. So each of those words has to ha carry a fair bit of weight. So uh, this was a short story of mine called "The Last of the Gorilla Gardeners," um, and a lot of people read this. Uh, from my colleagues who are impressed to see me in nature at all and on the back page of nature writing fiction even more so um, all the way to you know, science fiction fans and you can only fit so much in one page so I wrote a sequel to that um, called Seed Dealer so that, that's one of the ones that's in there uh, which kind of expands that, that world it's, an, it's a near future one um, to do with biology rather than astrophysics, which is a little unusual for me. Um, there's there's my contractual obligation uh, Lovecraftiana Cthulhu mythos story in there because <laughs> everybody has to do at least one. Um, so that's a sort of summary of, of, of some of the things that are in there. There's, there's others. In fact, I've probably forgotten all of the story. I, I can't remember 
each story that's in there in the sense I've, I've lost count of what's in there and what isn't. So you're involved in the EastCon science programme as you are with many other uh, cons. Uh, was the recent news of the first image of the inside of a black hole a gift for EasterCon 2019? Well, it was a gift, but it came a bit late. So uh, this was, what, two weeks ago? Uh, it was when the results came out. And I immediately got onto the email to uh, Virginia and Phil organising programme here. Say, can you squeeze a new item in? <laughs> and uh, so we've got three astrophysicists who are also attending here on that panel um, plus one or two other people uh, so that's that's on Monday so we'll be able to talk about that all. I've, in my bag here I've actually got three of the Event Horizon Telescope papers which I still haven't read yet uh, so hopefully I'll get to sit, read a little bit more of those <laughs> but a lot of it is just filling in the story um, interpreting results in, in, in plain language. Uh, the, to my mind, the, it's both the, the, the most impressive thing about it and also the most depressing thing about the result is that it all fits with, with what we think of how general relativity works. Uh, so no warp drive loopholes revealed so far, uh, which is impressive because this is something that Einstein dreamed up uh, over a century ago uh, obviously built upon by other people like Kerr who actually worked out how, how um, the metric works for a spinning black hole uh, but that was all done on the basis of you know, pure mathematics almost because um, there were very very limited observational constraints so it's truly impressive that you can predict what's going on in the centre of um, M87 I think that's, I've got the name of the galaxy right uh, with a black hole that's over 5 billion times the mass of the sun without actually knowing such things exist but it's also depressing because we haven't got any water drives yet <laughs> so to finish uh, what are you working on at the moment um, on the fictional side, I've got a, a, a novel-length project, which, fingers crossed, might, uh, might reach the public at some point in the next, next few years. Um, that's been taking up most of my writing time as late, so not too many short stories coming along, though there, there's some that I'm working on, uh, on my own little bit of... Um, so, on the short story side, I won't talk about the longer work, because I don't want to jinx it. But on the, the shorter side, I, something I, I started quite a while back, which um, I've gradually been working on, um, is, as it were, my take on urban fantasy. Sort of my subtitle in my own mind for this is the, the campaign for real werewolves. Uh, no sparkly vampires, no cute and cuddly werewolves here, please. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been Thank a pleasure. You. Thank you for having me. Hello, I'm Emma, uh, Emma Newman, and um, I'm a writer and an audiobook narrator. 
and uh, bizarrely a painter now, but I've only been doing that for a month, so I don't really feel like I can say that with any kind of authority. But yeah, I've just literally run across the hotel from the art room, setting up my first um, display. So I guess I should say that I am. I don't know. This is all very strange. I have horrendous imposter syndrome. I went in there and saw all these amazing pictures, and it's like, oh no. <laughs> but it's done now. <laughs> So, so what's that like exhibiting your art for the first time? Really weird. But like I said, I've only been doing this a month, and if someone said to me literally two months ago, you're going to do some paintings and then exhibit them at this convention, I would have just laughed in their face. And so I kind of feel like I've accidentally slipped into this kind of alternate reality where I do that too now. Um, it, was, it was literally something that I was doing just to be able to do something creative that didn't involve words um, to get me through a difficult time in my life and I started putting pictures of them up randomly online just as you do you know sharing with your friends on social media and then the first three that I put up someone said oh can I buy them please and I was like oh okay so that was weird and then people said I should do the art show so I did and now I don't really know what's happening but there we go I sound so professional, don't I? It's because I'm actually a writer. I'm not an artist. I'm just pretending to be an artist. I am actually a writer. So your um, planetful series of novels, what are they about? So there are four novels novels set in the same universe. They're all standalones. Um, The first one, Planetfall, uh, focuses on a colony um, on a planet, a distant planet, Um, And the colonists went there led by um, a woman called Lee Sumi, who um, they kind of called the Pathfinder. Uh, She basically ate this very bizarre seed on Earth, fell into a coma for three months, woke up a super genius saying that she knew where to go to find God and advanced technology massively, built this spaceship, took people with her to this distant planet and the book actually focuses on her best friend who's the 3D printing engineer for the colony and um, about the secrets that are kind of underpinning this colony and uh, how it's affected her mental health. Um, She suffers from a very severe anxiety disorder and um, so it's it's as much an exploration of her mental illness as the colony and the story of the colony. And then the other books kind of intersect, they're interconnected. The the second novel after Atlas is a crime, a a murder mystery um, set on Earth and the protagonist is the child of one of the people who left on that first mission. Um, and he is a specialised detective um, who is also an indentured slave and uh, he's investigating the murder of a cult leader and he escaped from the cult when he was a child and that's why he's been assigned to to, uh, to investigate it. Um, and then Before Mars uh, is literally set on Mars. It's a, a geologist, um, and she's also a painter, and she is sent to Mars to paint Mars on Mars um, by this kind of crazy billionaire who thinks that's a brilliant idea. Um, and uh, it's a psychological thriller. Um, she arrives on the base for the first time, then finds a note that she has hand-painted 
in her room saying don't trust the psychiatrist but it's when she's just arrived and so it's like what the hell is going on and she travelled alone and spent a lot of the journey like nine months alone in space in immersive memories like memory playbacks and um, there's a question mark over whether she has something called immersion psychosis where she can't actually tell what is real and what is not and um, and then the one that literally came out yesterday um, is uh, Atlas Alone and that is set on the second ship which is following the first one to the same destination and uh, it's about revenge and what you do to find some sort of justice in the wake of a really horrendous crime against humanity and how much of your own humanity you may lose in the process of getting justice. So there we go, that's that's the Planetfall novels. So is it just as nervy releasing the fourth novel as it was the very first one? Oh yeah, yeah, it's, I think it's my tenth novel in total. I think, oh Christ, I've lost count. Um, <laughs> And it's awful every time. I was a mess. I've been a mess for about a month. The lead-up to a book launch is just awful. Um, it's, it's a bit like sending your child to school and being scared if they're going to get bullied or if they're going to do well, if they're going to be happy. Um, you know, is it going to find the right readers who will love it? Are people going to enjoy it? Is this the end of my career? You know, all of these things... Um, yeah, it doesn't get any easier. I thought it would. And back when I was trying so hard to get published and really burning to be published, I had this ridiculous notion that once a publisher said, yes, we will publish your book, that that would be enough validation and that I would then suddenly be free of all of these self-doubts and uh, demons. Like, <laughs> how wrong. Yeah, no, that don't go away. <laughs> so it is just as hard. Sorry to uh, anyone listening thinking that it's going to get easier. It doesn't. Well, it hasn't for me anyway. So as a writer yourself, what's it like bringing other people's work to life in working in audiobooks? I love it. It's like um, stepping inside a book. Um, I'm a very, very fast reader, and so sometimes I'll read a book so fast, especially if I'm really enjoying it and I want to find out what happens. Um, I sometimes wonder if I just kind of skim across the surface on some level. Not with all, not with all books, but when you're narrating a book, you have to read it to prepare it, but then when you're in the booth, you are saying every single word of that book. You are acting every single character. You, know, you are conveying their emotional journeys. Um, and so it is such a deep immersion in the experience of that novel that it is, it's really cool. I really love it. Um, especially when it's books that I love. When it's a book that I'm not so in love with, it's just a job. But literally this week, like two days ago, I was in the studio recording um, a magical, um, it's a fantasy romance, I suppose, um, which was utterly enchanting. It's um, Snow Spelled by Stephanie Burgess and just so so lovely and really just the kind of stuff I love and um, then it's just a joy you know it's kind of skipping to work in the morning um, but yeah it's it's a very very hard job in many ways people think oh yeah I, I read to my kids at night and I'd like to do that too but the stamina and the concentration involved uh, is, is extensive. And in fact, I'm doing a talk on it uh, on Saturday morning about audiobooks um, to explain what does go into it. Because um, a lot of people 
you know, with lots of with most careers, people from the outside don't see everything that's involved. So yeah, but I love it. It's a great job. So it does make me really neurotic about getting ill, which is why I'm always sanitising my hands at conventions, because I'm terrified of getting concrud, because I'm in the studio next week, and I absolutely cannot get ill. So, yeah. So, when did you first start coming to conventions? Uh, two thousand. Well, no, actually, I tell a lie. When I was a teenager, I went to Star Trek conventions. And because um, I was obsessed with Star Trek Next Generation, and I had my Starfleet uniform, and I went with my Trekkie friends, and then I went to university, and I didn't really—I wasn't aware that there were ones for kind of all, like all of sci-fi or like the broader genre. I only thought that there were Star Trek ones because those are the only ones I'd kind of intersected with. And it was the 90s. There wasn't, you know, the internet world of, hey, everyone come and do this thing. It was, you know, you had to meet the right people down the right dark alleyway on the correct Thursday of the month when the moon was in a certain (laughs) position. And then you might find out about a thing that was happening in fandom. So, yeah, it was um, a real revelation to me. I I can't even remember how I stumbled across them but um, I went to a book launch for Gareth L. Powell who is now a dear friend of mine really quite a long time ago might have been ten years ago nine years ago and they were talking about BristolCon and I was like what the, this this is a thing people get them I thought that I was just in this kind of wilderness now I I was surrounded by geeks at university. I was in the role-playing game society. And I thought that now I was just in the the adult wilderness of, you know, being a responsible grown-up with a job and that all joy was dead now. And they said, no, no, there are these things that happen and you must come along. And so I went to BristolCon and then the SFX Weekender, as it was back then, um, and haven't looked back since. Been to loads all over the world since then. so, yes, yeah. Do you find it, it helps when you're, um, whether you're a fan or a writer or whether you're in the industry side, to come to conventions and be able to meet so many different people from all different parts of the industry? Definitely, definitely. Um, I mean, I, I can give very concrete examples of how it has advanced my career um, because my first... Um, proper editor, not my disastrous first book deal, but my first proper editor who um, is Lee Harris who was at Angry Robot Books at the time Um, I met him at a convention and, uh, no I met him at a book launch I tell a lie, I met him at a book launch and um, he had my book um, because I was thinking, I was actually thinking about self-publishing and he said well I'll read it and then a couple of months after that we were at the same convention together and I had a reading slot because my short story collection had just been published. And he came along and he was sitting next to Paul Cornell in the, the audience. And I read this story and apparently he turned to Paul and said, bloody hell, she can write. Because he hadn't read the book yet because he was scared it would be terrible because we got on so well. So then he went and read the book and made an offer and then everything took off. So it's there are many, many different layers of advantages with conventions. Um, I mean, I have friends that I own get to see at conventions and um, a lot of them are fellow authors 
um, like the collective noun of authors, it's like a moan of authors. We can all get together in the bar and have a moan about how terrible whatever X, Y, Z is and kind of console each other through the peaks and troughs of our careers. Um, but also just hang out with like-minded people. And then I also get to meet people that I'm a huge fan of and fangirl at them. And then sometimes people fangirl at me and it's, it's lovely. And in terms of the the kind of the global dialogues that are always happening within our genre going to panels being on panels participating in that conversation um it's a real privilege and and i learn so much at these events and learn so much from my fellow panelists and um yeah it's just really enjoyable hard work i'm not a naturally social person i'm very much an introvert and so have to kind of steal myself and tell myself I am not allowed to hide in my room for the entire weekend and <laughs> but when, once I'm doing it I'm fine. Are there any particular authors or books that you've read recently that you want to recommend? Oh my god yes so <laughs> I'm really excited about this one. I haven't even finished it yet I'm 200 words 200 pages rather not 200 words that'd be ridiculous <laughs> though they were excellent the first 200 words of this book um, yeah, I'm about 200 pages in and I was at an event last night at Waterstones Piccadilly with the author and I was so excited because I, I, I'm loving this book so much. It's, um, it's by Temi O and it's called Do You Dream of Terror 2? Um, and it's got a picture of a, a woman who with a, wearing an astronaut suit on the cover. It's absolutely beautifully written. It's about... Um, it's kind of set in an alternate reality where in 2012 there is a vibrant space program and there is a another planet that has been found that's very much like Earth and it, they're going to go and colonise it and it follows these young people who are part of the crew, like the, there are two sets of the crew as the adults and there are the younger people because they need people who are young enough to last the journey and get there and be the kind of the pioneers and um, so um, so with this one it's the writing that's beautiful it's the 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 stories of it's the consideration of loss when you go out to be a pioneer and you go on this amazing journey um, it's just amazing and, and meeting her last night was just incredible so yeah it was it was great so I'm actually quite obsessed with that book um, I've just read a galley um, oh Gordon I can see the cover it's by oh why didn't I write this down I can see the cover now in my head um, I think it was Sarah Pink's um, song for a new day thank you brain Song for a New Day, which is set in this kind of dystopian future where um, congregating in groups of more like 20 people is illegal, um, and it's about the power of music and um, society, and it's a really, really good examination of how massive corporations like Amazon, not named in the book, but it's like, oh, what, filed, you know, they filed off the serial numbers here. Um, it's a really, really, really good examination of what we lose in being cosseted and given the safety of kind of extensive laws about our own safety, in inverted commas. Um, and I really, really enjoyed that. It was awesome. Oh, 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 and the affair of the mysterious letter. <gasps> 
It's amazing. It's by Alexis Hall, and I, I don't know when it comes out. It's going to be very soon. I was lucky enough to read a galley of that as well because we share the same editor. Um, it's it's this um, Sherlock Holmes. It's a version of Sherlock Holmes, but in this fantasy world where Sherlock Holmes is this female sorcerer who is amazing it's imaginative it is so queer it is just the most joyful joyful thing and I would literally hack off my own foot to be able to narrate it it was amazing <laughs> so yes those those are my three recommendations they, they are fantastic excellent thank you so much for joining us it's been a pleasure chatting to you thank you for having me Um, my name is Daniel Benson. I publish under the name Daniel M. Benson. Uh, and uh, my first book came out in January this year, 2019. Uh, and so I, this is my, my third or fourth convention, but this is the first convention where I've come with my own book. Uh, so I'm very excited. Hello, Daniel. Hello. Um, so, yeah, would you like to tell us a little bit about your new book, Junction? Ah, uh, yes, thank you. Uh, Junction is a adventure exploration book. Um, it's about the uh, wonder and discovery of, of exploring a new world um, and how that can help us. Um, the main character is a uh, Japanese celebrity, uh, a sort of a... A survival type guy. He goes out into the jungle and, and wrestles alligators and things on camera. And he's just uh, sort of sick of it. He's coming out of a, a messy divorce and he wants to, he wants this to be his last uh, filming. But uh, while they're getting ready to film in New Guinea, uh, an amazing discovery is made in the highlands of uh, a wormhole that leads to another planet. And it's right over the border in Indonesia. Uh, and Indonesia claims the wormhole and the other planet as theirs. Uh, the U.S. and Australia disagree. Uh, and the rest of the world is trying very hard to stop war from breaking out. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of tension. And uh, the powers that be decide that the best person to send into the situation is a Japanese nature show host. Uh, and he's very... And he, he can't say no to this, although he really wants to because he's burned out... Uh, but on the other side, he, he meets the, uh, the biologist, who's the first outsider who's seen the wormhole. And, uh, he, and he meets the, this, this team of, of people who's been put together to be the first people to fly in a plane that they've moved through the wormhole piece by piece. It's a little Cessna uh, that's going to fly around and get a lay of the land of the planet on the other side. And... Uh, bad things happen <laughs> I can't <laughs> uh, and uh, I don't want to give away much more after that but they have to survive for real uh, on, an up, on a planet where they know literally nothing about uh, aside from the fact that the air is breathable uh, and uh, so it's, it's about exploration and discovery and, and healing and getting to the end of something and surviving it <laughs> so that's Junction so What's it like coming to a convention with mm -hmm. uh, your first published novel sort of just out? And yeah, uh, it's, uh, I don't quite know what to do. Uh, I think I, usually when I've, I've come to, this is my, my third EasterCon, 
and I usually come to conventions to sit down and have interesting conversations. Uh, it's a bit strange to talk about my own books because I haven't had any before now. Uh, so usually I, I in, my, in my day job, I'm an English teacher. And so usually what I do is I sit down with my students and I encourage them to talk as much as possible. Uh, so talking this much about myself is very strange and, and new for me. <laughs> You've been writing for quite a long time, lots of short stories and, and things. Um, uh, how has your sort of writing style developed? Was it always your goal to move into writing a novel, or was it something that just spun out of a shorter story that became a longer one? No, I did, I did want to write a novel from the beginning. Um, and my short stories were, were uh, experiments to see how things might be done. Um, and I have, I have a whole bunch of novels that haven't been published. I think the most writers are the same. And each of them was an experiment, too. And I tried something different with each one, hoping that I would hit on something uh, that would get sold. Um, and even now, I don't know exactly what I was doing with, with Junction. Uh, it was just, but uh, the next book will be something different again, because now I like experimentation. So from the description, it sounds like there's uh, lots of elements of, uh, of biology yes. in, the, you know, in the science fiction you're talking about. Um, so could you comment on that? That's, that's mm -hmm. something which is you know, it's dabbled in, but it's, um, it's not a particularly prolific sort of aspect of, of science fiction and fantasy. I, yeah, I love speculative biology. Um, I've been... Uh, I've been enjoying it since uh, I was a, I was a kid, and Dougal Dixon's Afterman came out, uh, which is which is literally a field guide to uh, species that live 50 million years in the future. There's no story; it's just pictures of cool animals. Um, and I uh, I was I've been doing a lot of different projects with that since forever, um, and I really wanted to find a way to have as much fun as I do with uh, a field guide and but actually have a story as well um, and uh, I'm, I'm going to be on a panel on speculative biology uh, later today and I'm going to meet Adrian Tchaikovsky uh, whose, whose work I really admire in this way uh, because he also uh, puts real science into it and so it's, uh, it's a fun story but also you learn something uh, which I really which is, which is something that I really enjoy in the science fiction that I read. And uh, who, you know, who are some of your uh, favorite authors that you've been reading recently? Well, now we're talking about speculative biology. So, I, so Adrian Tchaikovsky, uh, his Redemption's Blade, actually, uh, although it's based on fantasy, the biology is really, really good. Uh, and so he, he talks about uh, sort of genetically engineered monsters except it's dark magic that made them but once they're made what do they do how do they fit into the ecosystem badly is the answer but um, uh, who else has been doing doing there hasn't been a lot of recent stuff in that case um, Greg Egan uh, does good speculative biology um, his uh, Terranesia uh, is uh, a book that he wrote back in the 90s, I think, but uh, it's really interesting about, again, come to think of it, Indonesia, and, and something strange is on an island there. Um, Fragment by Warren Fahey. 
where they discover uh, an island that's the last tiny remnant of an enormous lost continent that's been separate from the rest of the world since the Cambrian, and there have been strange invertebrates living there that have grown to the size of tigers and will eat you. Uh, so that's the sort of that's the sort of inspiration that that uh, that I put into Junction with monsters that eat you. So was it a uh, um you know, an easy thing to write, writing a novel. I mean, given that you've done so much short fiction before, mm. did, you know, did it come easily? Was it easy to actually get published as well? Uh, it was definitely not easy to get published. <laughs> In terms of writing, like I said, each novel's an experiment. This one, I tried to uh, create the the animals uh, and, and figure out where they live and where they are geographically and have the, the characters... Uh, getting from point A to point B, what ecosystems do they cross and what do they meet in each place, um, which, I, which I, I did because I wanted it to be clear that the natural world was doing its own thing completely independently of the people walking through it. And so if it happened to be raining that day, the people in it got wet. Uh, it didn't rain because the people were unhappy. Uh, that, was, that was something uh, independent of them. Um, it took me about a year to write, as far as I remember. Um, it, was, uh, it was a difficult year because it was the year that I was diagnosed with cancer. Um, and I was only diagnosed after about six months of suffering without knowing why. Um, and my, my agent, when I sent this book to her, said, your main character gets beaten up an awful lot. Like, he's really in pain all the time. Is everything okay? <laughs> and uh, and I didn't know. Um, but after I, it was it's okay now. Uh, after I recovered, I uh, my agent sold the book, and uh, we went through the editing process and, and everything. And I and I realized that there was a lot of yeah, there was a lot of stuff from my life that ended up in the book. And when I edited it, there was then a lot of stuff about my recovery that that got into the book as well. Um, so see if you can find it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really fascinated by what you were saying about having to um, really think about how the biology of this world would actually <laughs> function for the story. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of world building, how, how absorbing can that be before you even get into the story? Well, yeah, so it's a rabbit hole that can go down forever. Uh, there, are, there are people who are uh, speculative biology hobbyists who spend their whole lives just you know, working on a single planet forever, and they never write any... In fact, I think it's, it's less, uh, more often than not, they never write anything about that. Um, and they, they just enjoy the, the creation itself. And I did too. I, I do, but I wanted to also tell a story. Um, so, I guess, I guess there was a. I, it, it was a, an art project on my on my DeviantArt page. I had a, some pictures of little creatures and some write up about them, and the write up was really interesting to write. Uh, and it's like, oh, the explorers still aren't sure what this creature eats, and it sort of evolved into the skeleton of this story. And, uh, and then, like I said, it took about a year to write that story. Uh, the, the, I wouldn't call it research, the world building. Before that was on and off for a long time. Uh, there's, there's ideas in there that I had when I was in college. Yeah. And are there elements of uh, the world that you created that don't end up 
in the book, but oh, things yes. that are in your head sort of driving yeah. you know, the story in the background. Actually, that's a really big challenge to make sure that everything that's in my head, I don't forget any of it. It doesn't it, that it all ends up on the page. There was there was stuff that didn't make it into the book. Uh, there were species that were in scenes that I had to cut, and then afterward I missed them. Um, but you but you mean like subconscious themes or, or stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. There's um, one of the ecosystems has some uh, the 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 autotrophs at the bottom of the food chain. Uh, rather than building up, they tend to build down, and they excrete acid that eats away at the rock underneath them, and creates these these big uh, sort of funnels in the in the earth, um, which on their home planet has caused their planet to be very, very geologically active. There's always uh, sinkholes that are forming and, and tunnels that are being drilled into the mantle of the planet to extract geothermal energy. And uh, this is a problem <laughs> for, uh, for the future that uh, the main characters only get a glimpse of. Um, but this, this particular ecosystem is extremely disruptive geologically. Um, and maybe in future books in the series, we'll we'll learn more about that. So you mentioned earlier on that uh, this is your third Easter con. Yes. Um, you live in Bulgaria. Yes, I do. And you've travelled all over the world as well at various points, sort of doing your life and career. Um, uh, being in Bulgaria, is there you know do you actually have access to sort of conventions or a writing community, or do you rely on? sort of the, the international community that you can reach through social media, for example. Yeah. Well, it's, it's sort of to my, to my shame that I don't speak Bulgarian well enough to have a conversation like this. I think that if we were trying to have this conversation in Bulgarian, you would have to be much more patient with me. Uh, and, uh, and, and I feel guilty about that, which means I don't practice, and it's a whole thing. Uh, so I, I depend a lot on the Internet and, and on... Uh, and on EasterCon, which is closer than, than anything in the U.S., um, I plan to go to a EuroCon at some point, but there's always been something in the way of that. Um, and uh, and I, I depend on my, my friends around the world. Um, but I, I say that, but I'm here with uh, my friend from Bulgaria, uh, Emil Minchev, who's a real Bulgarian, and, and he is uh, the translator of the definitive Dracula, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula in Bulgarian, and and he's also and he also writes his own stuff, and he writes in English as well, uh, and he's and and he's this is his first convention, um, and I'm also meeting some other people in Sofia who are into writing and who and who want to especially write in English for the for the world, uh, and uh, and I'm and I am I think I'm building a community there but it's but it's hard because of the language barrier so uh to finish what uh, who would you uh, recommend as you know current writers who whose work you're admiring at the moment are there any particular books that you'd mm. like to mm-hmm. recommend to our listeners well I, I talked earlier about greg egan i on the plane over i read his new novella perihelion summer which is excellent um i also read recently uh it's not a book but it's uh, a, a web series that's now completely finished that's that's all prose and and so it's basically a book uh unsong by scott alexander uh which is about programming and kabbalah 
and uh, and horrible puns and theodicy, the the demanding God to give an explanation for why evil exists, and he has a good answer. Uh, it's also really funny. So I, re- I I've been thinking about it every day since I read it, um, and. Uh, the other thing I read recently was The Other Kind of Life by Seamus Young. And uh, it's sort of, I've been telling it, I've been describing it to people as gritty Isaac Asimov. Uh, it's, uh, about a, it's about solving a crime with, with robots, and, and they're, they're humanoid robots, and, uh, and the, except that the main character isn't a detective, he's a criminal. Uh, and it's, it's very good. I, I enjoy it. And can you give us any hints about what you're working on at the moment that might be coming out in the near future? In the near future, there are two secret projects that I can't talk about. <laughs> um, there's, uh, I have some stuff that's, that's uh, floating around with publishers. I probably can't talk about that either. Uh, I just finished a very interesting experiment where I tried to use Terry Pratchett's writing process to write an alternate history story about... Um, a soldier, uh, an army medic from the, the Russian army in 1878 after the, Russo, uh, the Russo-Turkish War uh, who wanders around in southern Bulgaria and gets dragged into the subterranean civilization of the cave Thracians uh, who've been there since ancient times. Uh, and I, I'm really excited about it because... Uh, I, I tried this new process and I wrote the this whole story in a month and I'm letting it rest now but uh, I don't know when it will be published because no one knows anything but someday uh, there will be a Cave Thracian story that someone can read. Excellent, we look forward to it. <laughs> so thank you Daniel for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so I'm F.D. Lee, Faith, and I write fantasy books, and I'm writing a science fiction book at the moment, my first sci-fi. I write, yeah, okay, so I write fantasy books, and um, I've got three books out at the moment, and a fourth will come out in the next couple of months. Um, I write fantasy books that have a strong female cast, like I like to have lots of women in my books. Um, and I am here at EasterCon. So, um, your fantasy series so far, the Pathways mm. Tree series, yes. um, tell us about what that world is all about. <laughs> um, yeah, I should have predicted this question. Um, so, I wanted to look at stories, I suppose, and how stories kind of control the way that people think, um, but I wanted to do it in a fun fantasy setting. So I thought to myself, why do fairy tales always have the same ending? You know, it always ends exactly the same way, um, whichever fairy story you're talking about. And that naturally led to the idea that there is a totalitarian government behind the fairy stories controlling everything, (laughs) as you do. Um, So that's how my stories began. So the first one kind of looks at fairy tales and love stories and kind of a version of Cinderella. And then the second one is gothic, and it's kind of a version of Frankenstein. Um, and then the third one is uh, kind of steampunky, and it's kind of a version of Cthulhu. <laughs> <laughs> 
And the fourth one, um, the fourth book that you've got coming out soon, is that going to be in the same series? The fourth book that I've got coming out soon is my first science fiction novel. Um, So it's about a uh, time-travelling patent officer who has to go back in time and assure, kind of ensure that nobody steals the patent. So you know like in Back to the Future where Marty goes back and just creates rock and roll? Yeah. My guy Kong would be there to stop him doing that, <laughs> to ensure that the companies in the future stay powerful. And uh, he has kind of a good sci-fi tradition. Uh, he has a bit of a rude awakening to actually what's going on and what his purpose is. And then he kind of has to save the world, but he's not really the right person to do it. He's a bit, uh, he's a bit messed up, but unfortunately, it becomes his responsibility to save the world. I think that the most interesting people to save the world are usually the people who are not entirely fully equipped to save the world. Yeah, I think so. If you get Superman doing it all the time, you know, it becomes a bit. Oh, okay, we're safe. Yeah, I agree completely. So it's a really fascinating idea because you, you do get a lot of time travel stories where you know people think, oh, I'm going to go back and play the lottery and put my yeah. lottery numbers on. But the but the idea of taking intellectual property backwards and getting it for yourself was really interesting. What, how, where did you develop that the idea? Um, it was a conversation in the car, really, honestly. It was a conversation in the car with my husband. Um, I think we had just watched Back to the Future. <laughs> And we were just talking about, you know, if there was time travel, that would be the thing to do. You know, you know, you go back and buy stocks in Apple or, you know, you would say you would get the patent for something or, you know. And, um, yeah, it just developed from there. I was thinking, well, if there was time travel, it would obviously be controlled by these huge conglomerations because everything is. And they would protect that. So you would have people trying to do it. And then you would have people like Kong, my character, who are employed to stop that from happening. But then the novel kind of, because I'm quite a dystopian person, I'm quite cross at the moment with the world, which I think most people are, right? I'm kind of looking at the world and going, hmm, you know, I'm not angry, I'm disappointed. Um, And angry. So I, um, you know, I was thinking again about this kind of conglomeration and actually if they could control the past, the present will never change. And that's kind of where Kong comes in. He kind of sort of wakes up to this realisation that this job that he's doing is... You know, nothing will ever change, nothing will ever improve, because as long as he's making sure that they always have the power. And uh, that's the moment when he realises he has to save the world, and I love him so much, he's so messy. <laughs> but it's been fun to write, like, it's been really good fun to write, because I genuinely, I think, like everyone, you just look at the world at the moment and you just think, what is going on? You know, there's these extinction rebellions going on in London at the moment, and, you know, I think they're wonderful. But you also sort of think to yourself, this needs to be happening 10 years ago, you know, this needed to be, we're behind, we're behind where we need to be, you know what I mean? So Kong's been fun to write, sorry, this is a really long answer, Um, Kong's been really good fun to write because I've got to be really angry sort of via him at the world. So it's quite different from Pathways Tree, which is slightly more Terry Pratchett-y, slightly more Neil Gaiman-y, it's a bit more kind of light-hearted, whereas this is very like... So we're here at EasterCon. Have you been coming to cons for a while? Yeah, for yeah, a long time. Um, I had kind of a break, actually. You know how um, kind of... There's a joke, isn't there, that children of accountants sort of run off to join the circus and have lots of fun. I was a child of a comic book shop, so I sort of ran away in my 20s and became very boring and normal. 
Um, and then I've come back now in my 30s. But yeah, no, I, I grew up at cons. I remember going to the Star Trek convention as a kid and things like that all the time. And then, yeah, I tried to become cool in my 20s, which wasn't cool. It was rubbish and boring. Um, and then, yeah, I started coming back to EasterCon a few years ago. And then I've been yeah, getting back into them, going to like the FilkCon, which I really enjoyed. And I'm doing my first WorldCon this year. Should be good. So it... It's, it's always fascinating coming to an Easter Combi because you get a real blend of um, fan culture and obviously it's a, it's a fan-run convention but also there's an industry side to it, lots of writers, publishers, editors, authors. How important are these kind of events for authors to, to be able to kind of meet each other, discuss ideas, meet people in the industry and just chat to readers as well and find out what, what they're enjoying? For me it's amazing. I have to say absolutely absolutely amazing and I think hugely important um, I'm independent so there's always a danger I think that you get very isolated you know I think all writers have that anyway but I think if you're a trad at least you've got agents and stuff kind of nagging you and controlling you yeah. um, whereas I have to nag and control myself and coming to things like this it's wonderful I've met so many really good friends and it's lovely talking to people I wrote um my first two novels, and then I had a break while I did my PhD. And I came to EasterCon last year, and I didn't have a new book. And I was kind of like, you know, I, I guess a bit distant from it because I've been concentrating on my studies. And so many people just came up to me like, yeah, but where's, come on, where's the book, though? Yeah, I mean, that's nice, and I'm glad you're educating yourself, but seriously, where's the book? Where's the book? Where's the book? And that was amazing for me because it suddenly made me realise, actually, you know, this is something that I'm doing, and it's fun, and people are enjoying it, and... You know, that's lovely as an author. Um, and it's just so nice to meet people, though. You know, even away from the books, it's such a friendly con. You can just walk around, you know, and you're going to meet someone, and you're going to, like, strike up... I was in the queue to book in, and I struck up a conversation with a woman, and now I'm going to go to a fan fiction convention next February. <laughs> it's, like, amazing. Um, I don't know, yeah, I think it's really... I, I guess your question is, isn't it, it's specifically about being an author, but... I think it's wonderful, yeah. I think it's so good to meet other people. I've met author friends here. You know, we read each other's work and we critique each other, which is so handy. Um, and it's nice. I've been to a couple of my friends' book launches this weekend. My friend um, Susie and my friend Andrew have both launched books this weekend. And, and that's lovely to be there and kind of, you know, clap and cheer for them. Yeah, it's great. So what are the biggest challenges that you think you face going down the independent publishing route? What a question. Um, sorry, I'm just thinking that. It's genuinely a really good question. I actually, I, I think holding your nerve, actually, honestly, I think writing is writing, and whether you're indie or trad, that's got its own problems and its own difficulties and challenges. But I think being indie, I think there's still quite a bit of stigma from some corners. Um, less so, again, somewhere like this, because people just want the stories. You know, this is why this is nice. People, I don't care where it comes from. If I like the book, I like the book. Um, but I think, yeah, I think you have to have a bit of nerve, really, because people are still quite... Well, some people are quite sniffy about it. Yeah. I don't know why, you know, but they are. So for me, I would say that's it. I'd say hold your nerve and don't let people be sniffy at you. Everything else is the same, whatever writer you are. Writing is writing. You know, being brave, showing your work to people is scary, however you've got there. That for me, yeah. What are the avenues for promoting work through independent publishing? Oh. Is it all through social media or...? Um, through conventions or what's the best way to get the word out oh wow well for me both of those yeah um, social media is very good for me um, I've got um, 
I've got quite a few followers on my Facebook page. Um, I've got quite a large newsletter list as well, uh, which is really nice. I like my newsletters because people email me back and it's very friendly. Um, so yeah, social media and my newsletter list are, are big for me to keep in touch with people. Cons are really good, yeah, I think so. I don't think, I necessarily, I don't sell a lot of books at cons, but I meet people, you know, and that's very nice. I think for me, honestly, I think mostly, and this might be quite a nice thing in a way, I think mostly for me it's word of mouth now, which is, you know, that's what you want really. You say, oh, my friend lent me your book and now I've bought the other one. You know, that's really nice. But yeah, social media and cons are very useful. And I think once you get to that point, I think there's a threshold and then it just kind of starts rolling by itself, you know. Um, one thing that, that always fascinates me about going down the independent publishing route is um, going about getting cover art done. Because I saw, I saw the cover art to your Pathways through books. They, oh, they yeah. look really beautiful. Oh, thank you. Um, yes. the, the, the colours and sort of matching design of them. How do you... How do you find an artist to work with then, put that together? Conventions. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, self-publishing conventions. Yeah. But yeah, self-publishing conventions. Um, yeah, my covers are done by Jane. Um, and I, yeah, I met her at a convention, you know, and I thought she was really good, and then I emailed her. And, yeah, we started chatting. But I think that's, again, actually one of the really nice things about being indie or self-pub. Um, you know, I have that absolute control over my covers, mm-hmm. and I like that a lot. And I changed them about uh, a year ago. Um, and I could just do it, you know, I could just phone, uh, email, sorry, email Jane and say, look, can we try something different? I want to try something else. And, you know, she's very talented. I couldn't do it myself. Some people do it themselves. And I'm, I mean, fair play to them, but I, mine would be like a Microsoft Word art, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, clip art all distorted to make it fit the shape. Yeah. It's comic sans. Oh, it? yeah, obviously. What else would I go for? <laughs> Yeah, so I, I do not do it myself. Jane does it for me. Um, but no, I like that a lot. I like, I'm quite a control freaky person. So for me, being self-pub is um, is very much the right fit. I think I would have a little bit of a panic if I really like handed stuff over to somebody else. Um, so maybe that should be another answer. Your question about advice would be like, if you're a very self, uh, self-controlled self kind of person, you'll enjoy it. But you do have to have responsibility for everything that you do. Are there any particular authors or books that you've read recently that you'd recommend our listeners check out? Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, okay, loads, actually. I've had a little bit of a reading spurt, which has been really nice. Um, I've read a couple of kind of Roman fantasy adventure books. Um, Transitions by David Laskell. Uh, the Way Home by Julian Barr, which I'm really... I'm reading that at the moment. I'm really enjoying it. Um... My friend Andrew Wallace just launched his book, Celebrity Werewolf. I'm a couple of chapters into that. I bought it yesterday and got it signed. Um, And those are all kind of independent or, uh, I guess, small press authors. I've just started, or I've just finished reading The Expanse series, which I, oh my gosh, I'm quite a slow reader. I'm, you know, I'm a bit dyslexic. I'm quite a slow reader. And these books, you know, they're doorstop books. And... For me, I, I read the whole, I think, six, seven book series in about four months, which is such fast reading for me. And now I'm like, come on, guys, where's the paperback? Come on. Um, so, yeah, that's a big kind of trad pub one that I've read recently and really enjoyed. And um, oh, I've been going back to Terry Pratchett as well recently. You know, I mean, everyone's read them all, haven't they? But I sort of went back to The Witches and thought, oh, what would Esme do? I need some Esme. So I just recently read Masquerade and Carpe Jugulum. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure chatting to you. It's been really nice. Thank you for having me. 
So my name's Claire. I'm a YouTuber and a podcaster. I do a booktube channel, so a YouTube channel about books where I talk about what I'm reading and sometimes I do reviews. I also do a uh, bi-weekly, so every other week, news show about science fiction, fantasy and fandom news. Uh, and then on my podcast, uh, which is called Radio Free Fandom, I have a bunch of um, guests to come in and like, talk about fanish things that they like and give recommendations for like, basically any type of media and stories that, that they like. How did you get into podcasting and vlogging? Uh, so I... So I got into vlogging because my partner started doing a YouTube channel about gaming and I then started seeing how much like fun he was having doing that and then I found out that there were people doing YouTube channels specifically about books. I was like, ah, I see, that is the niche that I need to get into. And podcasts is something I've always been really obsessed with, just having something you know, in my ears when I'm doing chores or like walking to the store or whatever and I just really wanted to do one for a really really long time uh, and uh, I just thought why not uh, do something with uh, different guests every time that would be great for you know publicizing it <laughs> to realize that it would be like a lot of admin <laughs> inviting a lot of different people but it's really fun because it's always like a little bit different you never quite know and you get to talk to really cool people so what kind of equipment do you use? And has it changed since you began doing it? Yeah, it really has, actually. When I started doing... Well, when I started doing uh, vlogging, my YouTube channel, I was using a really cheap point-and-shoot, and I was setting it up because it didn't have a, it didn't have a flip uh, screen, so it was really kind of difficult to frame yourself. So I would set it up with, like, a mirror behind it so I could see if I was in frame. Uh, and then I switched to a vlogging camera, which is a Sony Alpha 1000 I I don't know exactly but I do know they don't sell that model anymore anyway so it's just really lightweight and has a flip screen Uh, so I had that for two years or something before I saved up and bought a DSLR which I now have and is really really great I have a couple of different lenses on it uh, for just different types of like lengths and depths of field of shooting the one thing that's been a really exciting change is recently I got this pancake lens for the camera which is a really nice shallow depth of field and because I record in a room in my flat always at the same distance like the fact that some lenses are actually like a, a fixed distance I knew nothing about photography and filming or anything like that when I started and it's you know a lot of what you learn is a lot of what you can learn online for free is people talking about doing that stuff for like filming short films and things like that which doesn't necessarily apply to how you make like your room and your house look good so I found that a fixed length or fixed depth camera lens for me that gives me the best kind of value for money and then looking nice for money I guess uh, for the space that I'm in because once it's set up once you don't really need to move it Uh, and that's what I've got on my camera right now and that lens costs like 120 quid or something so that's pretty good Uh, and for my podcasting actually I've um, not had as much evolution uh, let's say I was using a uh, snowball microphone for a while um, and that's 
ended up that stopped working and I bought a Yeti I mean really it's just a basic what do you get if you want to be into podcasting I also have a, a Zoom H1N which is the same that you guys are using now um, that I got last year for going to Worldcon with um, and then I did like an interview spot with a friend at Worldcon and then John Scalzi showed up in the middle of it to say hello to my friend and then ended up on my podcast <laughs> I was like what is my life this is amazing so how do you go about deciding what you're going to be reviewing what books you pick or what authors you're going to try and get to talk to so for me I have somewhat limited reading time because my day job is quite hectic uh, so it really is like what I'm excited about right now because if I'm not excited enough about it you know there's if I'm really stressed out and there's so much that I could read that I've already read I, I love a reread I read a lot of fanfic you know stuff that's really that I find comforting so like if I'm not super excited about something you know just the fact that I'm going into something is for me like I do a lot of selection before beforehand so it's just like following a lot of people on twitter who talk about the books that they're working on uh following like a lot of authors and publishers and i get to see you know announcements because i do the news show i research what's going on so i do a lot of um yeah i do a lot of figuring out what's out recently i'm also a judge for the booktube sff award which is uh, an sff award that's run by the booktube community so we take nominations from uh, everyone in the community people who have booktube channels but also viewers audiences and then we have a panel of judges and we have a bunch of categories so i'm judging in the science fiction fantasy comics and short fiction category so i'm reading that shortlist right now <coughs> Fortunately, that shortlist already had a bunch of things that I already read and I was really excited about. I think it's a really good shortlist. It actually has a bit of overlap with the Hugos and the Nebulas, which is pretty exciting. Uh, I mean, you know, at least it shows that we have decent taste, I think. Uh, so I am really a mood reader. I will just pick whatever, like, right now. Like, if I'm trying to read for a shortlist, it's always difficult because something else you know magpies your attention uh but yeah right now that shortlist is something like i'm reading record of a spaceborne view by becca chambers right now and then i'm looking forward to spinning silver because i love naomi novik's work and i have been saving it uh, and i now have to read it because it's shortlisted for a bunch of things i'm really excited are there any other books or authors that you've been reading lately that you'd recommend um that are sort of maybe sort of away from the award shortlisted again lots of attention I don't know I have to say I'm a bit of a basic witch sometimes so it's entirely possible that I'm just reading popular things that people <laughs> enjoy <laughs> oh dear oh dear um let me think a second <laughs> like all I'm reading right now is like Sean Maguire and you know <laughs> I mean She's great, but she's also on those lists. So, <laughs> Going back to the technical side of doing it, we use Audacity to edit our audio files for yeah. doing the podcast. What software do you use for doing the video editing? So for doing the video editing, I use uh, Sony Movie Studio, which is something that um, my partner first picked up when he started doing videos because it was cheap. 
and it was a bit better than you know um, Windows Movie Maker and then I learned on that because we had a copy in the flat <laughs> and then I got a copy for myself later when I was doing and again it's just it's very affordable it does all of the things that I needed to do for video editing and I can also edit podcasts in it which is perhaps not you know I'm sure I could get a piece of software that that cleans the audio better and all that but then I would need to learn it and that takes a lot of time (laughs) so I've been trying to learn the uh, Adobe Studio Suite because you know my day job I now work for my partners aforementioned YouTube channel doing video editing we're on Sony Movie Studio Platinum uh, 15 at the moment uh, avoiding upgrading at all costs because uh, you know settings work and we don't want to break the settings <laughs> by like upgrading you know but I would like to learn how to use uh, Adobe Premiere because you know it is something that is widely used in the industry if you're a video editor and I'd like to learn new tricks and all of that but uh, also I have owned a subscription to it for about six months and I still have to I still <laughs> yet have to go and spend some good time like getting into it because you know when you do something like a podcast or a youtube channel i'm sure as you know like you're always thinking i need to make sure the next thing is done and it's good and it's finished and it's on time (laughs) and it's difficult sometimes to do upgrades that aren't based on like let me buy this shiny tech thing yeah (laughs) and what kind of role do conventions play in terms of um, you know, meeting new people, spreading the word about things, but also finding out what else is happening in the industry that then maybe feeds into what you're covering on your vlog? So that's really interesting. For me, I love conventions because I'm an extrovert and I really like meeting people. Uh, and I just, I, I don't know, I guess I'm fortunate living in London and having done uh, a bunch of writing-based things in London. In the past, I was uh, running the... Vol- well, not running, but I was involved in with the volunteer team of running uh, NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month in London, some years ago. And from that, I've met a lot of people who have gone on to, you know, um, be involved in the SFF community, whether that's as fan or as writers. Uh, and... Um, <laughs> I think a lot of my friends, when they see me in like networking mode at a convention, you know everybody. <laughs> and like that's maybe a weird flex. I don't know because it doesn't feel that way to me. But I do tend to, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because I I just have no compunction. I go up to people and I'm like, "Hi, I'm Claire. I'm from the Twitter." <laughs> and you know, um, because I do spend uh, a lot possibly too much time on Twitter people tend to go like oh yeah I've seen you shouting about books on Twitter (laughs) but I think it's important to project the image on social media that you want to project if you were going to a convention you know with people you go up to people and be like so have you heard about this book I'm really excited rather than being someone who's shout about many things that aren't books on my Twitter but I, I think in general, you know, I try to think of like, how do I want people to know me and how do I want people to think of me? Um, and that's generally, you know, as a happy person who's yelling about things in both in fandom. And do you ever get nervous when doing an interview with someone? Oh, yeah, I feel like an awkward potato all the time. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I feel the same way. <laughs> no matter how long has passed, no matter how much we've been doing it, 
they still get really nervous. <laughs> so nervous. And, like, you know, you want to make a good impression. You don't know that people, you know, like, you lovely people tweeted about doing this spot. And I was just like, oh, the people replying to this tweet are like serious published people <laughs> I mean I guess they said reviewers and readers are welcome but like maybe they'll just laugh and think who is this woman and you know no one does because people are not jerks <laughs> but your brain tells you that and it just takes a while and, and why did I ever start a podcast where I had to write to people and invite them on my podcast like it's so hard <laughs> I had a lot of friends of mine on and I'm like oh are they just doing this to humor me because they're my friend? <laughs> I was like, they probably like you, you muppet. <laughs> it's really hard. But you have to know that it's just, you know, your brain or your, you know, self-consciousness or whatever. Like, I, I like to think of it as my brain. Can I swear? Yes, yeah, that's right. my brain being a dick you know I like to think of it as it's just my brain being a dick because that way I can just I can kind of externalize it a little bit and be like you know that's a separate thing I can choose to ignore that separate thing it's hard so is there any advice that you'd give to people who are maybe thinking about starting a vlog or a podcast where to how to get going what I would say is find a thing that you that is uniquely you, that you specifically care about, that you you know a lot of people will say oh but I don't really specifically have something to say or they'll say well there's other people doing that the thing is it, it doesn't really matter because you as a person you know a lot of this podcasting YouTube like it's about the person I follow so many people on booktube that don't really read what I read or that I don't necessarily agree with them but I'm watching for this person and their general opinion and their general demeanor and you know like the thing is it's really hard because we are not taught to do that but you have to remember that you're really cool and that, like, you know, if you let people see, like, specifically, like, I'm a second language speaker and I get really, you know, awkward and I want to come across very well. And I always want to, you know, if I make a mistake in how I speak English, I will definitely, like, do another take so that it doesn't go on the Internet. But, you know, actually... If I get in a rant about something and I just do a run-on sentence for like two minutes that ends up with me going, <laughs> like making that noise on camera, that's the best take of the lot, like a hundred percent of the time. And you just, so, so it's hard because I, I really get it. But like a practical piece of advice for me would be record like two or three podcasts or videos that you're not going to put up and I say this as someone who absolutely didn't do that because I'm like I did the work it goes on the internet I did the work it goes on the internet if that can help you you know feel better and if that can help you maybe see what it is that you like and what it is that you don't like and if it's hard if it feels like a lot of work you can just like record yourself and not edit it <laughs> like now I'm a full-time video editor so it's very weird for me to say that and I edit my videos with like an inch of their life <laughs> yeah maybe it sounds like weird advice but I think it's like you know 
I'm just gonna like watch your video while I'm having breakfast and drinking a <coughs> cup of tea and going like, oh, good for you. Those are nice books. I hope you enjoy your nice books. So it doesn't always need to be like a absolute perfect thing. But if you want it to be, then you can just practice a little bit, and hopefully that lets you feel a bit more confident about doing the thing. But like I'm a NaNoWriMo alumni, so just do the thing is <laughs> the way to get the thing done. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Claire. It's been fascinating learning about the, the vlogging side of things and the editing side of things as well. It's, yeah. it's something that's completely new to us because we've only ever dealt with audio. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like I have so much to learn about audio because I notice it a lot when I listen to shows and I'm like, oh, you're very interesting. Your audio doesn't sound very good. Oof. <laughs> kind of, you know. Um, and, and, yeah, I just I want to get better at that. So I need to get stuck into to learning it but thank you so much for having me I'm just like, I don't usually like talk without having a lot of notes ahead of time so I feel very rambly but I'm sure that's just my brain being a dick so nice it's been a pleasure thank you so much Hello, I'm uh, Noel Chidwick. I'm editor, co-founder of Shoreline of Infinity, which started off as a science fiction magazine, but has grown to be a lot more than that since. So I think we've interviewed a couple of your colleagues from Shoreline um, for some of our previous podcasts, oh. but I don't think we've ever had the pleasure of talking to you. <laughs> um, so Shoreline's been going for a couple of years now. Um, how are you finding the current scene for short science fiction and publications. Yeah, we've actually been going since 2015, so, uh, so we're entering our fifth year next year. Uh, it's been an exciting time, actually. I think short fiction, when we started off the magazine, uh, was not quite so popular as it possibly is now. Uh, there's a lot of good sort of short fiction available online and in print, uh, both from the UK and from around the world. And of course, the good old internet has meant that people can find this stuff uh, much more easily than the, than the good old days when I first started many years ago, before the internet. And how do you go about putting together particular issues of the magazine? Do you look for themes, or do you look for specific authors that you want to collect together in an edition? Uh, a standard approach is to open a submission window, and we're trying sometimes in our submission request for that particular one to sort of encourage a certain kind. Uh, for the the previous submission window, we, look, we said we're more interested in uh, stories from international writers or even translated science fiction to sort of help spread the, the, the field of the magazine. But usually we, we just like to get good stories for that issue and then mix them up as we choose from the ones we've accepted and make a good rounded edition. With a few surprises, I like the fact when we read one of our magazines, you read a story and you're not quite sure what kind of story you're going to get next. <laughs> so always give a little bit of surprise for the reader. But we did do one issue, number 11, which we did just for all women. Uh, and that was, we yeah, asked someone to edit it as a guest editor, Pippa Goldschmidt. Uh, and everything in it was written by women, about women. And that was a great success. Because one of the problems we had before that was most of our uh, writers were male writers. We had put a call out from female writers, and that really increased the ratio, improved the ratio of female writers. So much so that ever since then, our ratio has improved dramatically. So we're here at EasterCon. How important are conventions like this within the science fiction 
um, genre, but particularly for small presses to actually get to know people who are likely to buy there. Yeah, it's in, it's very important. Uh, we're based in Edinburgh, Scotland. We're in Heathrow Airport, just outside London. So it's quite a long trek for us, but it's still well worth the journey because here we get to meet uh, our potential readers, meet our current readers. Uh, this is our fourth, third event here at EasterCon. And I kind of generally ask, have you heard of Shaw and Infinity? And this year it's been great. Most people have. Or sometimes I think so. Which is, I'll take that as a, as a yes. <laughs> uh, so that's also been good to get some sort of uh, response to see how, how, how our reach is doing. Uh, but it's been great for attracting new readers and new audiences. It also gives a great chance to meet some of our contributors as well, who obviously come here. Again, being based in Edinburgh, we don't meet uh, all our contributors very often, so it's nice to suddenly find, oh, you've written for us, haven't you? It's nice to see you in the flesh. Uh, that's, that's a great uh, sense. So it gives us a feeling of what's going on, and obviously networking around in the bar uh, and during, uh, during the day as well. It's always good to sort of catch people uh, and talk to them and see if we can attract some good writers to, to Shawn of Infinity. So it's very important. So I know you've been in the past branching out into doing some live events. Yeah. And I understand you're also now branching out into doing a podcast as yeah. well. So what are your plans? <laughs> well, the, the, the live events were fantastic. We call it the Event Horizon. And it started uh, after we launched our magazine, issue one, in Edinburgh. And everyone enjoyed the event so much. We had a great mix of music, poetry, readings, uh, all the local community science fiction community came out to support us. And they bought the magazine, and the launch event was great, but they also kept saying, oh, when's your next event? Hmm. Oh, OK. Uh, oh, we'll run one next month in, shall we? And we ran a, a pop-up event in Edinburgh Festival, uh, supported by Deadhead Comics, who gave us the premises. And that went down very well. So we're doing it ever since. And the last one we had was number 41, Oh, wow. <laughs> and we're running it every month, roughly. And um, we've been booked for do the Edinburgh Book Festival, Science Festival. Uh, we did Birmingham Eastercon two years ago, Satellite 6. So the events horizon aren't just our monthly event at Edinburgh. Uh, they're also available to, to come to events as well. And they've, they've been great. And it's been great to actually see the people who read the magazine or like or science fiction um, fans and followers come to our, our events which we've kind of made sure they're accessible and warm and friendly so anyone can come along. So that started off well. Uh, and the magazine also attracted a lot of talented people from all, all sorts of things. And I got to know uh, Rob Bailey, RJ Bailey, uh, who actually hosts our new podcast, which started a few, few weeks ago. Uh, and that's kind of like a live event horizon in, in audio format. So we've got a mix of poetry, readings, audio drama, we're doing audio drama as well, where we take some of the stories from the magazine. And I've got uh, some very talented people working with me, actors and writers, who've converted those stories into short 10-minute audio dramas. We've recorded them, performed them, and they're going down very well indeed. And we do those live as well. We actually do sort of, you know, the great idea when you watch a radio programme being recorded. That's a great experience, mm. isn't it? Yeah. So we recreate that, put two microphones up. The actors have the scripts in hand. Someone does the sound effects, sometimes it's me, on, off, off to one side. <laughs> and, uh, and the great one we had was a story called uh, Lowland Clearances by Pippa Goldschmidt, again, which was converted into audio drama. And the request in the script for, was for metal-eating sheep. So if you listen to that, it's, it's, we've, not, we've not broadcast that one yet on a podcast, it'll come out soon, but <laughs> I had to work out how to make the sound of sheep eating metal. 
which scared the life out of the writer, Jonathan uh, Whiteside, when he heard it. So. <laughs> so it's been great fun, just bridging out from the, the, the simple magazine idea to live events, to podcast, audio drama, and uh, we've got other plans as well in the future, but uh, might leave some of those for the moment until they're actually fully formed. But uh, we are going to try and develop an approach where we can encourage all people who've got an interest in science fiction, creative people, to come together and work together to produce something. Um, obviously, funding is quite tight in, in this old world, but if we all work together, you can get, say, a writer together with an editor, with an artist, with a proofreader, and that way you can actually work together to actually produce something that otherwise couldn't be done unless you went to a big publisher or invested in your own money. Uh, so we're trying to look at a more cooperative way of, of developing content and interesting material. Well, I think we're really excited to see whatever it is that you're, that you're going to spring on us next. <laughs> <laughs> so if people want to get hold of the magazine or the podcast, where can they go to? Uh, yeah, the best place to start is with our website, uh, which is www shorelineofinfinity.com and there's obviously links from there the magazine's available in print format uh, ebook format, pdf format and all the links to our podcasts and information about our veterans are all on there uh, and also our other publications as well which we also are branching out to do uh, like in this case to convention we launched a book a practical guide to the resurrected which is a collection of uh, medically inspired short stories uh, so go to our website www.shorelineofinfinity.com and we're also active on Twitter, so follow us on Twitter at ShawInf. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been You're a welcome. pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Hello, I'm Emil Minchev. I'm from Sofia, Bulgaria, and I'm a writer and translator. And this is my first uh, Easter con. So how are you finding it? I find it fascinating meeting all these writers, uh, meeting all these interesting people who <laughs> share, we share uh, interest in science fiction and fantasy, and uh, we're discussing projects, we're discussing uh, books, we're recommending uh, books to each other, which is always very nice, and uh, we're also discussing uh, different tricks of the trade, I guess, would be... Uh, the right way to put it. I also met uh, my uh, editor. Uh, last year I uh, submitted a novella to be published in a collection called Dracula Rise of the Beast. And it was a real honor to meet uh, David Thomas Moore, who is the editor of that uh, collection, to talk uh, with him. And uh, I also met, met uh, Adrian Tchaikovsky, which is very exciting. I was actually quite intimidated <laughs> to tell you the truth. And uh, it's, it's, it's a real honour to be part of this event. So uh, you mentioned you had a, um, a short story in a Dracula collection. Um, so is that, is that your only connection to the world of, the world <laughs> of Dracula? <laughs> no, actually. I did, the, well, let's say, the definitive translation of uh, Bram Stoker's novel because in Bulgaria uh, there had been, I think, two or three previous editions. And they were all very uh, heavily um, shortened. Let's say that they've basically removed most of the uh, descriptions, most of the atmosphere, which if you do that to a gothic novel, you get only plot left. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was commissioned to do the full translation of the full unabridged text, which was a real honor. It's a gothic masterpiece. It's a masterpiece of literature in general. 
I've also translated the short story collection by uh, Bram Stoker, which is also a very interesting uh, process. And of course, it's one of the most popular char characters, one of the greatest novels of all time, I would say. What's the process like of translating a novel? How, how do you begin? How do you um, go from uh, you know, a, a, a sort of blank page on one side and a f page of full text on the other side and actually s start the process? Yeah, it seems intimidating at first, but uh, once you, uh, like, let's say, become a professional, one, once you got enough experience, it's just like anything, it's just like a process. Uh, but of course you do a little research first, you make sure you uh, maybe have read something else from the author, but I personally, personally don't like to read the book beforehand, because I like to keep it fresh. Mm. And of course, after, the after I do the translation, I do edits of the translation, so if I've missed something... Uh, but uh, it's, a, it's a very fun process. Of course, it depends on the book, because I've translated really terrible books, and that's <laughs> a terrible time. Uh, but if the book is really, really good... Uh, for example, I've also translated Oscar Wilde, and that was sublime. Mm. No matter... I've translated plays, I've translated uh, non-fiction, and it's absolutely amazing. Whatever he... Whatever you translate from Oscar Wilde, it's worth your time, definitely. And it, it grows you, not only as a translator, but also as a writer. And I have a very good example of this. I, I translated uh, Barry Lyndon by Thackeray. And that translation, that it took me, of course, three months, because it's, a, let's say, a big book. And it actually changed my style, and it, my writing style, and it gave me... Uh, the confidence to try not only to try to write in English but also to to write the first person story which I found that it's very uh, it's a shortcut to the psychology of the characters mm. and it's, it's, it was a very useful thing to, to discover and uh, of course Barry Lyndon is a first person but it's also an unreliable narrator very ahead of its time and that's another experiment I, I tried and it was successful. So, in a way, translation, like doing translations, is making me a better writer, I think. And your novels um, that have been published, are they all science fiction? Or? Uh, well, there are two of them are science fiction. So, let's, uh, I've published four novels in Bulgarian. The first one is a fantasy book, which is terrible. I was 18, <laughs> I'm sorry. The second one is kind of like an anti-utopian book but it's a bit depressing it's, it's about the internet and how it can affect a teenager a growing mind and uh, the, the third and the fourth book are part of a series it's a uh, mystery science fiction mm -hmm. it's like a detective who solves uh, locked room mysteries but it's set in the future so yes science fiction has always been one of my favorite genres so I try to get it into everything I do. <laughs> uh, so and the third and the fourth book were successful and there will be a third one. I mean, like the first and the second in the series yeah. about the detective were successful, so I'm uh, working on the sequel, uh, on the third book uh, at the moment and it will probably be published in September. And you've written a short story collection as well. Yes, uh, I've been working on a short story collection ever since I finished the translation of Barry Lyndon because it gave me the idea to do a first-person unreliable narrator mm -hmm. story uh, about a sideshow performer. 
one of my passions. Uh, and uh, that was, I think, five or six years ago. And ever since then, I've been writing short stories. And this year, I decided to collect them in a little volume. There are 13, 13 short stories. And uh, the, actually, I, I published it uh, uh, online. Uh, it's available online. And it's called A Coffin Full of Nightmares. And for this particular event, I decided to uh, self-publish, to print a few books, to give around to people, to get their opinion, get, get their feedback. And uh, in Bulgaria, the book has been pretty well received. Of course, there is, uh, uh, I think, a prejudice, which is completely understandable, a Bulgarian writer writing in English. I mean, why? Why would you do that? But I guess... It actually, it's not a conscious choice. If the idea comes to me in Bulgarian, I write it in Bulgarian. If it comes to me in English, I write it in English. That's that's all there is to it. Have you ever translated your own story? Oh no! Oh yeah. no! That would be terrible. <laughs> no, because I it just got that that thing out of my brain. I don't want it back in again. <laughs> so I I think I would never do that. <laughs> Is there is there a, a dream project that you would have of a, a particular book or series of books? Oh yeah, there is there is an idea I've had for probably ten years. It's a bit autobiographical, and it's very complicated. And I'm not sure I would be able to do it justice at the moment at my level. I think I need to be a better writer to do it justice. It's it's about it's like an an ad adventure book but it also has a supernatural element and it also takes part in my neighborhood in my city and it's kind of like because I've lived in the same place for 30 years which is quite unusual and I, during that time I've seen how my neighborhood and my town and my country has changed because when you're in one place the change happens around you mm. and I, I thought it would be great to write a book that kind of like jumps from uh, let's say in the middle of the 90s part of the action takes place in the middle of the 90 in the mid 90s and part of it takes place now and is the same character reflecting on his childhood and something that happened to him as a child mm -hmm. and that change that happened that like in Bulgaria those were really turbulent times especially in the 90s and I thought it would be great to have a book that's also it, it's about those changes and it's about the people who are swept into them, but it's also very entertaining and it's kind of like pulpy, which mm -hmm. I like. It also has a supernatural element, and that that's my dream project. <laughs> and do you have a particular uh, book or series of books that you would like to be involved in translating yourself? Oh, translating? Wow, that's a great question. Actually, uh, a long time ago, I translated uh, a book in the Maozan Empire series by Steven Erickson and uh, Ian Esselmont, which is a great experience. I've also, also translated two books in the House Moving Castle series, which is amazing. Dianne Wynne Jones is unbelievable. Uh, I've always wanted to translate, but I'm not sure I'll be able to do him justice, something by Terry Pratchett. But he's such an amazing. He was such an amazing writer. But uh, I think maybe someday I would feel uh, like I'm adequately able to do justice to his prose, which is sublime. And is there a big uh, science fiction 
and fantasy community in Bulgaria, or do you rely on the more sort of international nature of things, sort of getting you know getting into contact with people through sort of social media and things to to link up like that? Mm-hmm. I think both of those things are true. There is a, a community in Bulgaria. Actually, uh, the story the story is different with science fiction and fantasy in Bulgaria, because and horror. I have to say because I really like horror, mm-hmm. but uh, science fiction is legitimate whereas fantasy is considered still considered childish and horror is considered by some people decadent because that's the legacy of the communism years science fiction is respectable because that's progress science industry and we had some amazing science fiction writers and of course Soviet and Eastern European writers were extremely popular in Bulgaria like Stanislav Lem, Karol Čapek the Strugatsky brothers, but fantasy, b- maybe because it's so close to fairy tales, and people have like this prejudice against fantasy, which is very disheartening. They say, "Oh, this is for children; it's not serious literature," and I- they sometimes have a blind spot. They don't even consider like the Lord of the Rings fantasy. Oh no, that's a cla- that's classics, mm-hmm. or they don't consider uh, something like Lo- Robert Jordan. Like because it's respectable, so it can't be fantasy, which is infuriating. <laughs> and with horror, it's especially it's especially bad with horror, because, uh, as I said, they consider it like a, it was considered during communism a decadent Western phenomenon, not to be encouraged in anyone. So we started getting. Uh, of course, the classics were an exception. Edgar Allan Poe, that was like, oh my God, that's classic literature. And we started getting, uh, like, for example, Stephen King's work after the fall of communism. But some people still consider it like a bad thing if you read, like, pulpy horror fiction, which I really don't, don't like <laughs> as an attitude, to tell you the truth. I have an interesting... I, I, I think horror is very important because it allows us to look deep inside into the darkest reaches of our psyche. And I think Bulgarians don't really like that. And there is a stigma connected to that, apart from the, the thing about communism. And it's also... I've noticed the, the same thing about uh, psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. People, even if they... There are people who go to a therapy, but th- they're ashamed to admit it. It's like the, the very idea of looking within yourself is kind of like embarrassing to people. Yet, but we're getting better and better, and f- there is a very robust horror community. I have to say, maybe because horror is more persecuted, mm-hmm. and maybe that's why it's very robust uh, community. There is a, a Lazarus Club. There is also a Lovecraft uh, Club. Which is very nice because they people get together, they discuss their favorite stuff, and they also publish publish collections of their stories, which is really cool because you can read new Bulgarian authors, you know, doing genre stuff, which is always good. And uh, could you recommend some uh, particular authors or books that you're you're reading at the moment that you might think other people might be interested in from any genre? Well. The last book that really impressed me was Clive Barker's uh, The Damnation Game. I know it may sound like pandering because he's an English writer, but oh my god, his style is amazing. Like as a translator, I'm deeply impressed by the way he, like his word use, is so original and refreshing. I, 
like I've seen him like use words that I've never seen used like that before. Like someone going to the bank and saying, money me. Like, give me money, but money me. That's an example that's not in the book, actually, but that's the type of thing I'm talking about. And also he's very original, very a very unique author. And that, that was the last thing that uh, really uh, impressed me. Uh, also, um, I've been reading some uh, hard-boiled detective fiction, uh, which is also... Uh, actually, it's, it's not that... There isn't a stigma attached to it in Bulgaria, but we haven't had like a breakout hit in that genre particularly. Uh, we have had, uh, especially in the sci-fi genre, famous Bulgarian writers like uh, Luben Diouf and Pavel Vezhinov. And uh, But I don't think there has been a, a Bulgarian detective novel that has like, become a bestseller. So maybe in the future <laughs> there's something to look forward to. And do you think you'll be coming back to future Easter cons? Oh, definitely. I had a great time in London and a great time here at EasterCon and uh, I'm definitely coming next year I, if, unless something comes up I hope nothing comes up but I'm, I'm here next year <laughs> cool thank you for joining us Emil. Uh, thank you very much Hi, I'm Beth Folds, uh, also known as E.M. Folds, um, as that's my writer's name. And I do a podcast called Speculative Spaces, uh, where I interview authors and sometimes make them read out stuff. And then I interview other people who might be involved in the uh, speculative fiction industry. Oh, hi. Is this your first Easter con? Um, it is my first Easter con. It is my second con at all. Uh, I um, went to the satellite convention in uh, Glasgow and I've just been starting my podcast and starting the whole idea of conventions which was um, kind of new to me. I think I, I'd heard about them and then gone, hmm, I don't know anyone, so, but now I know people. Uh, it's a lot easier just to go along. So it's also Monday morning at EasterCon, so how has yeah. the weekend been? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit frazzled due to um, just running myself ragged uh, because I've been recording people and then trying to upload them the next morning um, before. Like I, I, would have, I would have uploaded them at night, but I'm sharing a room with Kat Hellis and the author. And she goes to bed earlier than I do. <laughs> so it's like, you know, I, I'm bit rattly with the keyboards and the mouse and everything trying to do all that stuff so I decided to do it every morning and I think I figured most people probably wouldn't listen to it till the next day anyway but yeah and what about you? <laughs> yeah I think we're, we're just about conscious awake uh, which is pretty good for the Monday morning <laughs> after yeah. an Easter con but yeah definitely ready for uh, some sleep. Do you <laughs> do this every year like? Um, we come most years I think we've well, I, my first Easter Con was 2009, and I've probably done seven, six or seven over the, those ten years. A mm -hmm. um, couple that we've missed, but we always try to at least go to one convention, whether it's Easter Con or World Con or a Fantasy Con or something. Yeah, and uh, World Con this year in Dublin, being within striking distance of the UK, is quite useful. I, I don't think I probably would have gone to one of the American ones, mm -hmm. just a bit too far. And then there's New Zealand Con next year, I'm like... Eh. 
it's a long way. And I'm from Australia, so I know. <laughs> I've, I've got the scars. 24 hours plus in a plane is, yeah, it's a thing. So what made you want to get into podcasting and how did the idea for it come about? Well, I'm a member of the uh, Glasgow SF Writers Group, uh, Writers Circle. And um, basically, uh, I was you know, trying to write on my own and I've self-published a novel, Ada King, um, before I met them. <laughs> uh, if I'd met them, I might have held off on that whole self-publishing thing, but that's another story. But um, I used to just, when we would finish uh, our critique um, night, uh, we'd go to the pub afterwards and deconstruct everything, and I'd just ask them all these questions. And then I thought, this is basically like I'm interviewing them. <laughs> Hold on, this is like I'm interviewing them. So I decided to use that power for good and try and share all the answers and help them promote their work as well, because there's one thing that um, I think a lot of authors have, which is that they have to promote themselves, and they hate doing that. Because, you know, generally most authors are shy, kind of nerdy creatures. And I thought, well, um, if they're just having a chat with me, then they don't have that whole, you know, awful feeling of, please buy my books. <laughs> but, they, you know, people get to hear about them, hear what great people they are. So that's why I decided to do that. And how has your podcasting techniques evolved since you started doing it? Are there any sort of big changes that you made to the way you set things up or any, any kind of big piece of advice that you give uh -huh. to people who wanted to get into podcasting? Um, well, I've only been um, podcasting since, well, I started my first, um, you know, upload in December. Um, but what I did make a mistake of was doing too many in advance so I only release every two weeks, um, but what I did was I thought, oh, I better get a few in hand before I do that. Um, so every weekend I invite, you know, friends over to do the recording, um, and I got like six in a row. And then actually that was a real big mistake because the the episodes were no longer necessarily current. If we were talking about something that they were releasing, then it was gone by the time it came out. So that's something I don't do anymore. Um, and, you know, uh, this whole idea of um, on-site recording for Eastercorn is a bit of a... It's like, you know, noises everywhere. Like, you know, um, I was basically trying to find a quiet corner. Um, <laughs> <laughs> We've got some and then I came around the corner and said, hey, we're going to record, and you guys are here. <laughs> I was like, oops. <laughs> Yeah, so there's a lot of... It's a learning curve, and this is only like... You know, I only did te 10 episodes before this one. So, yeah, things have changed, but, you know, I expected that. I expected to get things wrong. If you expect to get things wrong and they go right, you feel better. And what about yourselves? Like, when did you start podcasting? Oh, well, I think we had the idea maybe three years ago, and we got our first episode out maybe two and a half years ago now. Mm -hmm. I, I checked, I, I, I couldn't remember how many episodes we'd actually done, so I checked yesterday, and it's 85. Uh -huh. um, That's I, quite I, a few more than me. <laughs> um, but it's, yeah, we've definitely evolved and, and changed what we've been doing over that time. The structure of the episodes, we've started up sort of streams. Um, under different titles to talk in depth about different things and uh -huh. um, getting more in, into interviews and also getting 
a bit more confident about doing interviews. I don't know about you, but I was so nervous the first dozen times I, I had to um, interview people. I don't know um, if the nerves came out at the time, but certainly um, I would crash, and I still crash quite heavily after a big recording session because it's just uh, just such a, a pressure to do things. And then when when you finish, you're just like, <laughs> 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 so th yeah, that does happen. Um, and it depends on how well I know the person. If I don't know them at all, uh, I'm like, oh, I could get so many things wrong here. <laughs> but usually people are, you know, they're fine. And um, it's really been lovely. But like, what, what made you guys decide to do this? I think we, we were listening to so many podcasts and we kept having these conversations of, you know, oh, wouldn't, it, you know wouldn't it be great if there was a, a, a podcast about a certain sort of topic that we really mm. liked or... Um, and, and particularly because we were coming to conventions, we thought, you know, what if there was a podcast that could take some of those late night discussions that you have in the bar at a convention and put them uh -huh. into a format that people might enjoy listening to. Mm -hmm. So that was where we began, really. And we, and we thought about doing it for a while, got in touch with some other podcasters that we listened to and said, well, have you got any advice? We didn't know anything about equipment, um, software, anything at all. Mm -hmm. um, and it, you know, people that we asked were really kind and gave us loads of good advice. So we we just thought, well, let's see if we can do it, and recorded a test episode, mm -hmm. which I'll never see the light of day. Yeah, no, I did one of those. Hi. <laughs> 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 have, have you ever gone back to listen to it now? What to the episodes once they've been recorded, or to the test? To, episode? to the test episode. Um. No, not really, because. Um, Oh, it was good, but I didn't know what I was doing, and we were just messing about. Mm. So, um, I actually recorded my husband, um, who is, you know, was helping me set up all the sound equipment because he plays music, so understands things like this lead goes in here. Um, but yeah, uh, does not. It's not ever going to happen, <laughs> and that's that's his right. <laughs> you have a right to not be recorded. <laughs> So where do you see your podcast sort of moving to in the, in the coming months, years? Have you got plans? Well, I'm actually moving house, uh, so I might have to take a wee break mm -hmm. for a little while um, and then come back to it. Um, I've got Kirsty Logan uh, coming up uh, as hopefully she's still going to be able to do a recording for me and things like that. But it's then going to be a case of how do I find more people because I live up in Glasgow and there's just you know you have to reach out to people and I do a face-to-face -face recording so I'm, I'm not been doing like Skype or phone interviews so actually finding the bodies yeah. is the difficult part for me and uh, I don't know if I will be able to do um, you know regular episodes regular releases forever but then I tell myself, you know what, it's, an, it's a voluntary thing. And it's free. And, you know, people will get the episodes when they bloody well get them. <laughs> and if they don't like it, we'll go and pay for something. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I mean, obviously I'm going to do my best to try and uh, carry on. But I think if I take a, a wee break, I don't think it's, you know, and then maybe come back to it at Worldcon or something like mm. that, no one's going to be that upset. They're going to be like, oh... I'll wait till that comes out then, and yeah, then it will. But um, I'm going to everything this year. Uh, I've gone a bit mad. I've gone, 
I've got FantasyCon um, as well, as WorldCon, and um, Chimera Book Festival, which um, I spoke about in my last episode to the organizer. They basically, because I, <laughs> because I interviewed the organizer, she said, yeah, come over and just tell me who you want to interview for that book festival. So I'm like, quid's in. <laughs> yeah. Aye. So... But yeah, I've I've also got writing to do. I'm I'm I've basically finished another book, which is um, it's 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 looking for a home. So, um, that's um going to be hopefully sent out to people in the next month or two. So again, I might have to take a wee break. <laughs> what kind of genre is it? It's actually low fantasy. It's it's a fighting female fighting warrior kind of book, which is uh you know like there's not that many of them out there there's a few but I, I feel like it's not a genre that's oversaturated um, in that area um, but um, I am actually mainly a science fiction writer um, or at least I started there I think what happened was uh, I basically went uh, science fiction is uh, better you know like that whole snobbery thing and then I met all the people at the, uh, the Glasgow SF Writers Circle, and they are not all SF in terms of science fiction, they're speculative fiction, so they do anything. And I've read some of their work, and I'm like, oh, actually, maybe this attitude was a bit wrong, because there's some brilliant fantasy, weird, um, crossover, horror things that I had not been reading for quite some time, and um, I didn't realise how good it could be when it was done right. Because obviously, when you're a child, you start off with fantasy, because um, that's what's available, and then you move maybe to science fiction if that's your bag. But I mean, there's no reason why you can't read fantasy as an adult with um, some really deep and meaningful um, themes. So yeah, I mean, I think it's just been a real eye opener to find a circle of people who are just really good and very helpful and supportive and that's what I, I think I really recommend for anyone who's trying to write to actually go and do that Are there any particular authors or books that you've been reading lately that you'd recommend people check out? Hmm I've been reading Adrian Tchaikovsky and it's not just because I'm interviewing him <laughs> <laughs> and it's not just because he's been very kind to me about my writing um, but he, he, I, I loved Dogs of War and now I'm reading Children of Time to catch up with that uh, series, so um, that's the person I'm reading right now. I'm trying to think who I was reading before that. Honestly, I've I, my TBR list exploded, and I've been uh, just gulping down all the books that have um, because I've interviewed people. I'm I'm hearing about more people. I'm and I'm guessing you've probably got a similar situation. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, and before that, I was reading uh, Wool by um, what's his name, Hugh Howie. Yeah, uh, and that I, I am sometimes a little bit out of date with my TBR because I've got such a backlog that I actually am reading things not necessarily from the last year or the, so. I'm I'm reading things from a couple of years ago, but I'm trying to catch up. <laughs> and what about you? Yeah, we've been we've started this monthly book club thing on our, on our podcast uh-huh. where every month we, we pick a book um, we read it, we try and get an interview with the author, we encourage our listeners to read it too and send us their comments and, mm-hmm. and things like that so the, the last couple of ones that we've done have, have both been really good actually 
um, Paris Adrift mm -hmm. by EJ Swift. Yeah, I listened to that episode. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and um, The Loosening Skin by Alia Whiteley, um, they were both excellent. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's partly trying to keep up with things because, you know, once you say, right, this month we've definitely got to read this because we're doing it on the, on the book club episode, but also we've got to get all these other episodes out too, and also we've got to read for fun around it, and also do, you know, actual jobs and things yeah. like that. It all, it all builds up really quickly. Absolutely. And I've got a house to renovate. <laughs> I've got um, a book to, a novel to finish, uh, polish, and send out. I've got a short story competition to enter. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it, it's kind of getting to the point where the podcasting is actually taking a fair bit of time, which is um, it's the difficult part that you don't think about too much when you're starting these things. Is um, Actually, you need, if you're going to do it right, you need to dedicate some quite a few hours per week to doing it um, to editing like the editing can take me ages because mm -hmm. I'm so pernickety about things and I get to this point where I was just like oh don't worry about it ah oh, but I'm gonna worry about it <laughs> and end up spending hours just trying to take out clicks and stuff like that which you know should be easy usually it is sometimes it's not what software do you edit on? I'm using Audacity because basically I'm cheap. Yeah. But I mean it's good piece of software, it works. It's got the things I need to keep learning, my you know, my learning curve is going up every time I'm using it. But um yeah, I mean obviously there's probably better software out there in terms of you have to pay for it. But what about you? Yeah, we use Audacity too. Yeah. Um and the the D clicker plugin is an absolute lifesaver in terms of trying to get rid of those annoying clicks. Yeah. It depends on like it, it depends on um, the recording. Like, if you get that right at the start, it's so much better. Yeah. <laughs> so much easier. Like, you know, get the person the right distance from the mic, get the person's um, general, like, get the, get the room sound right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes a heck of a difference. Yeah. I mean, we do quite a few interviews on Skype, um, either um, video to video Skype or we use Skype to call their telephone if they want to do it on, on the phone mm -hmm. and uh, yeah it can be quite challenging trying to clean up those audios it, it varies wildly depending on the kit that they're using at their end which you've got no control over yeah I, I also made the mistake of feeding one of my guests who shall remain nameless cheese before the um, <laughs> podcast and that person who shall remain nameless was slightly burping at the back of their throat the entire interview and thought it wasn't getting picked up, but it was. <laughs> so I had to try and take out a burp from someone's actually, while they were speaking. So, uh, things happen. Life happens. You've just got to deal with it. And um, yeah, the, some of these outside broadcasts I've been trying to do here, well, not broadcasts because they're not live, but nearly live. Um, um, and there's just, there's a, we're at Heathrow. There's a plane every five seconds. There's a bus every five seconds. There's a taxi. There's people with trolley cases. There's people with drinks. You know. <laughs> it's yeah. So it's challenging, but again, it's free for people. I'm not getting paid really to do this unless I find some episode sponsors. You know, uh, please come and sponsor me. But <laughs> speculative spaces. Go and look me up. It's great. Uh, but yeah. Uh, 
it's it, yeah. I'm not getting paid by someone to make everything perfect. So to an extent, you have to just go. Yeah. This is the art form. This is the way it works. It is impromptu. It is generally amateur. Generally, obviously, there's some people who have a, a little bit better, sweeter setup than us. But yeah, yeah. This, this is real life at a con as it's happening. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you. Now I better go check out because I've got a plane to catch. <laughs> Hello, time for cakes and ale, people. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. My name is Ruth E.J. Booth. I am an author and academic based in Glasgow, Scotland. As an author, um, I'm a winner of the BSFA for Best Short Fiction a few years ago. Um, but I, you can find my work in Black Static, in The Dark magazine, in Pseudopods and various other places. And as an academic, I'm an academic of fantasy and science fiction. Um, and I'm also a non-fiction writer. You can find my column, Noise and Sparks, in Shoreline of Infinity, and it was shortlisted this year for the Best Non-Fiction Award at the BSFAs. How long have you been coming to conventions for? Oh, my goodness. What a question. I was trying to work this out the other day because um, EasterCon is one of my favourites. I've made nearly every single one since the first one I went to. I think... The first EasterCon I went to was um, was this was either the 62nd or the 63rd. It was in London, um, and before that, I think I'd been to one or two fantasy cons. So, if you can minus the number from this year being the 70th EasterCon, then you can probably work it out. A while, should we say a while? That will do. What kind of role do conventions like this play for um, for writers, for fans, for people in the publishing industry side, for, for people who just care about science fiction in general? Oh my goodness, um, they're indispensable. You know, I mean, I think the, my favourite thing about this is, you know, you, you just mentioned the list, you just mentioned fans, you mentioned um, writers, you mentioned industry professionals. The fact is that cons bring all these people together. It kind of demystifies the process in a certain way, in that you get to see that all these different groups are, are really all just fans at heart, really, and we're, we're all kind of working in different areas of genre, but really, we're here because we love what we're doing, and I think being at a convention really brings that across. It's amazing just the number of random people you can just chat to in the bar, especially come like EasterCon. You come here and the guests of honour will be hanging out in the bar and you'll just get to chat to them um, and um, there will be major imprint professionals here. You can just get to talk to them, ask them um, about the kind of things they're interested in. Uh, this is what I love about conventions. I'd, I'd really like, speaking as an academic, I'd really like to see more academics get involved in, in conventions and places like this. Um, 
I really feel passionately that a lot of now that fantasy academia is kind of growing and being uh, and getting more recognition within the academy, um, I think this is really the right time for them to start connecting with fandom because I mean you have people like um, like Dimitra Fimi, you have people like Farah Mendelssohn, um, Edward James who will come to cons like this and give talks, but really they're very much in the minority. I mean we're l really lucky to have Brian Atterbury here this weekend. Um, he is one of the seminal fantasy theorists. I mean, um, his strategies of, of, of fantasy is um, just one of the core texts for any fantasy academic. And it's great to see him here, but this is really a rarity in the UK. And uh, it would be really be great to see it. Uh, to see something a bit more like Worldcon, where you have a dedicated academic track and academics are kind of a bit more involved. But yeah, the UK is a little bit behind in that respect, but hopefully in the future we'll get some more academics coming along to conventions. That would be really be fantastic. What inspired you to start writing? Oh my goodness, uh, what a question. You know what? It's it's kind of it's an interesting one because you know a lot a lot of times people talk about when they've kind of picked up writing in their teens or when they've been in in their twenties or, or possibly even later. And there's been a particular key book that's inspired them and kind of set them off at that particular point. So for me, it would be Neil Gaiman's American Gods, um, basically because I. I really like the I I I know it's written in a it's written in a particular way because he was really trying to go for a quite direct style of um, of of prose that comes from some of the American writers, um, but looking at that and looking what he managed to do imaginatively in that really kind of um, kind of spoke to me in a way, and I I was looking at that and I was thinking. You know, I, I won't necessarily be on that level, but I can definitely give it a good go. And I loved the way in which um, in which he mm, adapted gods to the particular settings and paid attention to the ways in which they might develop, but still retained true to the core of the original um, the original gods, the original folklore, and kind of developed that a little bit. Um, I found that really interesting, and it's something that I've written about academically. It's something that I've, um, I've um, been exploring a bit in my fiction work as well. Um, so there's that side of it, but on the other hand, um, like I say, a lot of times it's a case of revisiting, and if you start thinking about this, really... I've been writing fiction since I first knew how to write. It's the it's often the earliest thing you write, even if it's just a fictionalized version of what you've been doing that particular day. And I go back and I like look at things that I just randomly wrote when I was a kid or randomly wrote a little bit later and I've been writing fantasy all my life. It's quite startling and um I you know to kind of look back at that it's and think well I came back to it in my in my late 20s, early 30s, but really it's something I've always been doing. I just needed to realise that that was who I was. That was what I needed to do. Are there any particular authors or books that you've read recently that you'd recommend? Oh, my goodness. Um, this is the problem because a lot of... I, so, um, to give you a bit of context, last year I finished an MLIT in fantasy. Um, I just graduated before Christmas. Uh, it's the one at the University of Glasgow, by the way, if anyone's interested. And um, so 
I went straight from that into a creative writing doctorate. Um, FYI, I don't recommend that. Please do take a break <laughs> in between academic study if, you ever, if you're ever thinking about taking this route. Um, and so a lot of the reading I've been doing for the past few years has been for my course, and I've very much been reading out of turn, particularly when it comes to books. So it's more been in terms of short stories that I've been reading. Um, I've also been reading a lot of fiction connected with my DFA project, and um, unfortunately, not all of that is good. I don't really want to say, oh, I don't recommend. I don't recommend this book, and it's when it's one that I've been I've been working with and all that kind of thing. That's not useful. No one wants to hear about books I dislike. Um, I can tell you one that I, I'm reading right at this moment. Um, so I'm reading, I'm actually reading um, Frances Harding's Cuckoo Song. Now there is a story behind this because this is not the first time I've tried to read this book. Um, first time I tried to read it was, was a few years ago and I'd, I'd gotten it out of the library um, and um, I'd started with it and honestly that book, that book really, really scared me. Um, I don't know what it is about, about Frances's writing she, that she manages to create such an unsettling atmosphere and I'm trying to talk about it without spoilers that sense of there being something very very wrong and you can't entirely put your finger on it and you know it's to do with yourself and um, full disclosure so I suffer from social anxiety disorder and that sense of something not being quite right is something I very much recognise. And so when I, first, when I first came across it in this book, I, I could not continue <laughs> reading it. I'm sorry, I, could, I, couldn't, I couldn't keep going with it and I ended up having to return it. So when I realised that Francis was going to be um, here, um, I thought, well, it's a really effective book you know, a lot I can learn from it on the one hand, but on the other, uh, you know, I, I, I really should go back to it and, and, and persist with it and try and get through it. So I've been, I've been slowly working my way through it quite carefully, and it's, it's, it's magnificent. That is the reason why it scared me so much. The reason why Frances Harding's um, Cuckoo Song scared me so much was because it was so incredibly effective at getting that atmosphere across. And she's a magnificent writer. She, her sentences are absolutely wonderful. Um, it, it really is a masterclass in writing. Um, so I would highly recommend... It's, it's, a few, it's a few years old now. I can't, I can't remember exactly when it was published, but I highly recommend picking that one up if you pick up anything from our guest of honour this weekend. Why has short fiction in particular remains such fertile ground for science fiction as a genre? I, I absolutely love short fiction. Short fiction is my favourite medium, I think, um, for a few different reasons. I mean, you know, especially when you kind of get older and you don't have as much time to kind of sit down and spend an entire day reading a book like you did when you were younger. Much as it would be lovely, it's just not possible anymore. Um, so short fiction, just when you're commuting or something like that, um, is just absolutely wonderful. Um, I personally have, um, have an e-book reader on my phone, um, because usually when I read short fiction, I'm commuting. 
Um, so what I do is I have several subscriptions kind of set up regular. Um, really great ones that you should check out um, are obviously... I say obviously, it's not obviously, is it? If you're just getting into this, I apologise. Um, the magazines that I think you should really be checking out, um, in terms of ones with, um, with e-subscriptions that you can easily get, so Lightspeed Magazine, um, Clark's World, uh, Analog, um, Uncanny in particular, um, uh, are really, really great ones. Uh, did I mention Asimov's? Asimov's as well. Asimov's science fiction is, is a really great one to check out. I believe Apex are temporarily closing their, um, their magazine wing. Uh, possibly might want to check that. Um, so those are the e-subscriptions um, that I usually get. In terms of, um, of ones that are print only, because in the UK actually some of the best, mag best magazines for short fiction to check out are, um, are just print only. Um, if you look for Black Static for horror, if you also look at Interzone for science fiction, um, that's also fantastic. You'll find a lot of the great up-and-coming names, in, particularly in, in British and European SF, We'll usually, uh, you'll usually find them in um, in either of those two. Also, another one, another great one to look out for, and I will admit bias in this particular one, um, is Shoreline of Infinity, who also publish my Noise and Sparks column. Uh, they also have a really great selection of short fiction, and especially for up-and-comers, they have a really good eye. Um, they also run a regular flash fiction competition every year, so you generally find some good entries for that once a year as well. Um, but they have quite—they do have quite a range because at the moment um, they have uh, stories from Ken McLeod in there, so you know, a, quite a well-established Scottish writer. But they've also got um, Kat Hellison in there. Um, who, South African writer, uh, now based in Scotland. So you'll get quite a variety, quite a range of short fiction in there. But they're really good at finding the things that you won't find anywhere else. So as a reader, I, I can also recommend them. That's awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, Rita. It's been a pleasure chatting to you. Oh, thank you. Yes, um, my name's Ian Waits. I'm an author, an editor, and a publisher. An author by choice, the rest by accident. They just sort of happened. Um, about 13 years ago, I launched New Compress to publish one anthology. Here we are 13 years later with some 120 books out. Um, we've had a, a, a launch here at the convention, which has gone extremely well. Very honoured to have launched a book by Gwyneth Jones, who's an author I've loved for many years. And Gwyneth kindly travelled up for the launch at the convention. Um, that's a, a short story collection called um, Big Cat, which is her first collection for all oh, about nine and a half years. There's also an author called Ian Creasy, who is a, a very successful short story author, um, author. He's had many stories published in Asimov's Analog and other magazines, but he's never published a novel, so he's not known so well um, to the British public and the reading public but um, he's a very good author so it's great to get a collection out by him I've also got a madcap um, 
short novel by Andrew Wallace called Celebrity Werewolf, which is actually a high-concept science fiction novel. But it doesn't start out that way, and it certainly doesn't sound that way from the title. But that's a great story. And I've been lucky enough to publish um, Rachel Armstrong's second novel, Invisible Ecologies. Rachel is an architectural biologist. She's Professor of Experimental Architecture at, uh, at Newcastle University, and she specialises in exploring the boundaries between the organic and the inorganic and this particular novel is set in a near future Venice and it has a lot of, um, of, of green me- um, messages behind it, of ecological messages as well as some absolutely um, crazy wonderful um, bioengineering stuff going on and basically it's about a, a young lad born into an um, ocean gypsy family living in Venice who ends up getting into a symbiotic relationship with a life form developing amongst the bio mat that um, Venice is built upon. Um, so that's Invisible Ecologies. And then I've had um, David Gullen's very, very um, relevant novel, Chipocalypse, which is essentially um, a Bonnie and Clyde for the Trump era. And the tagline I've put on that is rob from the rich to buy for the poor. And so that's the tagline. And a wonderful omnibus uh, of two novels I've previously published by Ian Watson and Andy West as signed hardbacks. This is a paperback omnibus, which is tremendous both to read and also to keep the door open. It's, it's the biggest book we've ever um, published. And then a short story, well, a slipcase set of four novellas by Dave Hutchinson, um, Simon Morden, Adam Roberts and um, Philip Palmer so four new novellas so there were a lot of books going on we had a lot of stuff and just to add on to the launch we were joined by John Kane who um, is the widower of um, Tannis Lee who was a great great friend of ours and uh, Imanian Press has launched a new title featuring some of Tannis rarer and previously uncollected stories so that's what we were doing on Friday and basically we've been selling all these wonderful books since <laughs> So Newcon has a really wide scope in terms of the types of genre novels that it that publishes, also novels, novellas, short story collections, um, new, new short stories, collections of previously um, uncollected short stories. How do you go about choosing what you're going to do next? It's very difficult. I mean, there was a time when I would approach people and say, would you be interested in doing this? But now Newcon's reached the point where an awful lot of people very flatteringly come to me and said, would I be interested in looking at it? In fact, far more than I can possibly publish. So the result is that I tend to be saying, thank you very much, but I can't at the moment quite a lot. And I'm turning down some wonderful, wonderful stuff because I'm publishing some even better things. And essentially, it's all guided by my own personal taste. I wouldn't publish something if, when I first read it, I don't think... I'd be happy to invest my own money in this. And it's something that moves me. That's when I will look to publish it. Now, thankfully, a lot of my um, people who buy and collect Newcon seem to have similar tastes to me. If that ever changes, I'm in trouble. But so far, it's worked. I, it literally is that simple. I, I'm, happy, I'm delighted to publish new authors. I'm delighted to publish authors that I've read and loved myself for many years. It's down to... My, how I perceive the quality of what they're doing and whether it surprises me, moves me um, whether it, it's something that I yeah, I feel, I, I feel genuinely moved by and excited about, that's really really what it is so a, a Newcon launch is, is almost part of the furniture now at Eastercon <laughs> every year how important are conventions like this for small publishers to meet authors um, 
people who want to buy the books, people who are looking for new books to read. When I first started Newcon, every single author I, I published was someone I bumped into at a convention, and I, usually in the bar, funnily enough. <laughs> Authors are very good at being in the bar. And, and it was, it was, I'd be talking, I said, look, I'm playing an anthology, would you be interested in contributing a story? I can't afford to pay the professional rates, but I think these days the short story market is such that even big-name authors don't often expect to get paid huge amounts for short stories, unfortunately. Um, when you compare what even the, the bigger magazines in America are paying now to what they were paying 20 years ago, there's been an increase, but it's nothing like the increase in the, in the sort of cost of living. So in real terms, the, the payment levels have, have gone down dramatically. And thankfully, most of the time, they say, love to. But so it's, it's vital to, for that. It, that's less relevant to me now. It's more about catching up with people and seeing people. But yes, I'm just saying that. I've just thought of two new people I've connected with this weekend with, for possible fiction. So forget what I just said about it not being so important. Now, yes, it remains a very important um, uh, method, but it, it is about the, the community. We're very, very blessed to have a fantastic community, 99.9% of whom are wonderful, warm, open, intelligent um, people. I mean, obviously, I'm not the exception on the intelligent front. But, you know, they're great people to know, great people to talk about. And it's a wonderful situation where you're surrounded by so many people who you know you have a lot in common with because you have same... You wouldn't be at a science fiction convention unless you had some love of science fiction. So that's all part of it. It's a recharging event when I'm at Eastercon. I work my backside off and I come here, and yes, we're working and selling, but then we're, we're um, chatting and catching up with friends in the evening. And you're right, along the way you do make connections with new authors, new artists. Wonderful. So if people want to find the latest releases from Newcon, where should they go? The Newcon Press website's the obvious place. Um, what, what I haven't done so well, I mean, you've got all the paperbacks and hardbacks are on there. What I've got to do is link through to the Kindle editions. All the books are up on Kindle as well. Um, there are um, often other ebook formats created. I don't always um, promote those straight away because I get wonderful little offers and the adva- uh, ability to promote books on Kindle if it's exclusive to them, which is obviously a marketing ploy, but it's one that does have um, big effects. So New Compress, and once I've got the links up, just New Compress, but otherwise that dreaded word, Kindle. <laughs> And you'll be at Worldcon? If you're yes, yes, it's going to be at Worldcon. Um, we're just working out the logistics of getting the books out there, but we will. We'll be there, and uh, we're there for the duration. Looking forward to it. But, um, though I remember from Longcon where we also sold books, I remember just how exhausting it is, but it'll be a good exhaustion. Well, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. No, our pleasure, and, um, yeah, best of luck. I hope the podcast and web, um, website continue to do brilliantly for you. <laughs> So once again, thank you to all of our guests for joining us for our EasterCon special. It was really fun to attend the convention and for the first time uh, record some conversations with uh, people who were attending, trying to kind of transfer the the kinds of conversations that you can strike up at the convention with um, other attendees to the podcast, which was really fun. And as we said at the top of the episode, if you'd like to find out more about uh, the authors um, we've put uh, website links and twitter handles etc on our website so if you go to timeforcakesandale.com to the page which is uh, focusing on this episode uh, you can find all the relevant links there yes and if you want to get hold of us to tell us what you thought about this or any other episode you can find us on the website or on twitter at tfcaa or on our facebook page time for cakes and ale 
And I suppose to finish, uh, what I would add is uh, we're going to be at uh, Worldcon 2019 in Dublin and we'll be bringing our equipment along there as well. So as a quick shout out already, we'd love for you to get in touch with us if you'd like to join us to record a chat at Worldcon 2019 as well. It'd be really fun to do an episode uh, much like this one where we could uh, chat to um, as many attendees as possible who might be interested in sharing their interest and fandom in the world of science fiction and fantasy. But until next time, from both of us, be be seeing seeing you. you.